I, I think the hard problem is close to being solved. I think the real challenge, what's much harder, is going to be these other forms of consciousness. That's the real difficulty. Hello and welcome to Talk Today, where we explore developments in science, technology, and society, and what they could mean for the future. I'm your host, Sam Barton. Well, this episode is a bit of a wild one. It is a three-hour discussion bringing together a unifying principle for life, the free energy principle, with several pernicious problems that have plagued us for years, like consciousness, free will, intelligence, and what the hell is going on when we take psychedelic substances. Leading us on an awe-inspiring tour of these interconnected, mind-bending topics is the scientist Dr. Adam Safran. Adam has recently finished a postdoc at the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University and has moved on to the Johns Hopkins Center for Psychedelics and Consciousness Research. His work brings together neuroscience, psychology, and philosophy from a complex systems perspective and is truly fascinating. His ultimate aim is providing a multi-level account of the factors that help people to be adaptive, creative, and free in all aspects of their lives. One of his more recent projects has been developing a theory of consciousness, integrated world modeling theory, which in the context of the free energy principle and integrated information theory, proposes that conscious experiences are what it is like to model an embodied self and world with coherent organization by space, time, and cause. In my conversation with Adam, we cover the free energy principle, the big five personality trait model and its recent cybernetification, intelligence and why the artificial intelligence of the future might have to be embodied in order to reach its purported potential. Adam then takes us through his theory of consciousness, integrated world modeling theory, which leads us to explorations of free will and, of course, psychedelics and the brain. At the very end of the conversation, Adam answers some questions that were asked of him by people on Twitter. So if you are looking for those answers, uh, skip to about the last 10 minutes or so of this conversation. The more of Adam's work I discover, the more interested in it and his take on the world I become. While we spoke for just over three hours, we still didn't cover everything we wanted to discuss. So we have a follow-up episode planned for the near future, where a big part of our discussion will be focused on Jordan Peterson's magnum opus, Maps of Meaning, and how the ideas in it seem to be completely consistent with the free energy principle. As an amateur philosopher who doesn't know much, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that one day it may be considered one of the greatest works of moral philosophy to come out of the last century. But that is a discussion for another time. Anyway, let's get into it. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Adam Saffron. Adam, it's great to have you here. Uh, this has been a long time coming. Um, so if we could just begin by, uh, if, if you could just give me a bit of a, an intellectual tour, like how did you get in, uh, interested in neuroscience and, um, you know, did it start from a young age? You know, how have you come to do what you do? Mm. Um, well, I guess it probably started with a couple factors. Um, uh, One was a existential crisis about free will um, in high school. Uh, That went on for a couple years and was pretty bad. Um, And generally um, interested in um, the brain, uh, my Father was a temporal lobe epileptic, so that got me asking certain questions. And um, yeah, those I say those might have been the the two things that set me on the path of trying to figure out uh, what the heck's going on with minds. Yeah, yeah. And so you're currently doing a 
a postdoc. I, I've got my notes here, but I don't need to check them. Where, where are you um, uh, working at the moment? So I just finished one at the uh, Kinsey Institute at Indiana University. And now I'm starting at uh, uh, Johns Hopkins uh, Medical School at their new Center for um, Psychedelics and Consciousness Research. Ah, great, great. Oh, that's very exciting. Well, we'll definitely dive into the, uh, both topics uh, later on. Um, so I think central to, I guess, more of your work recently has been um, this relatively new uh, way of doing science or exploring, not doing science in general, but way of exploring um, living systems and mind and behavior, um, the free energy principle. Um, so I have, to, I did a, I think we connected um, after my conversation with um, Maxwell, uh, Max Ramstead. Um, so perhaps we don't need to spend two hours exploring what the free energy principle is, though I will ask clarifying questions because I don't think I uh, completely get it yet. Though I feel like this is a, Welcome it's to a feeling call. that's, yeah, yeah. I feel like I'm not alone in that, but I like the, um, the, the formal, like the mathematical background to really be able to get it, I think, but I think I've got a, a handle on it. So if we could, if you don't mind, um, just talking to me a bit about what the free energy principle is and uh, why it's causing such waves uh, in, I guess, f philosophy, but also in, in neuroscience and other fields, I'm sure. Hmm. So I'm not sure uh, what I'm about to say is canon, but uh, someone can correct me and yell at me if I get it wrong. Uh, as I understand it, the free energy principle is a uh, general systems theory um, and, and a means of uh, modeling complex adaptive systems. And it begins from, there's a couple different ways you can derive it, but one is um, from the observation that um, really uh, starting in, in a way from, from Schrodinger's question, like, how is it that there are things that are persisting with complexity in a world governed by the second law? So somehow through in a world where you would expect the most probable outcome to be for things to increasingly um, accrue um, cybernetic entropy or disorder internally, um, you should expect the most probable outcome for them to get just all mixed up by the meat grinder of existence. So why don't you see this? Um, so they have to be doing, doing something clever. And so this um, idea would be from the good regulator theorem, maybe the law of requisite variety um, from cybernetics. Um, you know, any, in order, the idea would be that complex adaptive systems in doing this trick of existing, continuing to exist, um, they're somehow entailing a model of what th they are and what they must do by which they are governed. Um, and so the free energy principle, um, somewhat counterintuitively to people, um, would argue that persisting systems in their very existence, it's not just that they have a regulating model, some systems do have models that govern them, but that the system itself is a model. That the dynamics of the system um, have a certain, um, uh, can be understood as engaging in a kind of generative modeling, generating the um, system preserving states through their um, internal modifications and their interactions with the environment. 
And um, that, and so then the free energy comes in is that in these modeling efforts, these um, active inferential modeling efforts where systems are um, minimizing, so the idea would be that systems are minimizing their error with respect to these models, which have these implicit predictions of what must be done to exist, and that they're adjusting based on prediction error. And so in minimizing prediction error, um, there tends to be, a, I guess, two different ways you could do it. One would be you update your, your model, you change yourself, and the other would be you change your relationship to the world and change your, so you, you either make your predictions match your observations or you make your observations match your predictions. And so the free energy idea would be um, that these modeling efforts, how good you are at doing it, you would, you would um, characterize them or quantify them by this objective function or a cost function that's saying, okay, you want to have good fit. You want to have low prediction error. You don't want to be surprised too often. Um, but in these modeling efforts, you want to obey Occam's razor. You don't want to, you want to minimize the complexity of your modeling efforts, minimize the extent to which you are updating and moving your expectations in the face of data. And so you want to prevent overfitting, prevent getting too complicated, um, obey the law of parsimony, but you also want to fit the data. And so the free energy is a um, comes in as a means of quantifying the goodness of a generative model, um, where the free energy, uh, I believe maybe it would be um, uh, Hinton and Day in 1995 with respect to um, Helmholtz machines, a precursor to autoencoders. That's where that idea first got introduced. And so that, I guess, would be free energy principle in a nutshell. Um, you could think of it as like Bayesian autopoiesis or okay. like. Well, so can we, un can we yeah. unpack that? Because I don't think, I mean, you know, these are, these are quite niche things. This, this is more of a, a general podcast. Yeah. So what is Bayesianism and then what is autopoiesis? So um, autopoiesis, um, I guess, would be um, Mantrana and Varela. Um, two Chilean um, complex systems theorists and scientists uh, taking on, in a way, the Schrodinger's question, like, what is life? Um, and what the way they characterize um, living systems as um, engaging in self-making or autopoiesis, where they, through their action, they specify a given extent of the system, a topology of what the system is, and they um, they continually reconstitute themselves through their action. And so that would be so that would be autopoiesis. And so then um, the Bayesian version uh, would be um, recasting this idea in terms of constituting a type of probabilistic inference, um, I guess coming to these free energy ideas. So it's um, uh, and where Bayes is um, just a uh, a framework for understanding probability, where you uh, bring knowledge together, weigh it by its respective certainty, and update your knowledge, and then use your updated knowledge to contextualize new observations, which you then uh, update your knowledge further. Uh, repeat, repeat, repeat. So it's 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 really an um, iterative science, um, mm -hmm. and so the 
autopoiesis, so the, I guess I would call it Bayesian autopoiesis. I don't know if I would want to call it that, but you could call it that. Um, as if you're understanding these systems as generative models, where what they're generating through their action is um, model, uh, they're, um, uh, Jacob probably calls it self-evidencing, that the system is through minimizing its prediction error is can also be thought of as um, accumulating model evidence for itself. It's it's making it more likely that it can be said that that system exists in that particular kind of way. And so uh, the yeah, the Bayes would come in and 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 treating these modeling efforts, treating these probabilities um, uh, formally as a kind of inference, as a kind of learning. Mm -hmm. Okay, so. I just want to kind of give you my take just so that if I, if there are any inconsistencies or errors, you can correct them so that, you know, this conversation going forward is better informed, updating my model. Um, <laughs> so the way I see it and, you know, from what I've read is all organisms exist in a world and that world is far more dynamic and random than the internal world. Um, and to persist across time, uh, all organisms uh, either are or develop a model of the external world and their place in it, so their internal um, state, and they try to minimize the error between what the model says the world is going to be like, the internal and the external world, and then what it actually is like. And I guess some, aspect, some aspects where I get a little bit confused is there's this information theoretic notion of surprise, right? So if we're a model, oh no, sorry, if, if I'm a living organism, I can only exist in a certain number of states to survive. Um, like the, this, the state space of survivability is incredibly small compared to like the, you know, the space of all the arrangements of atoms that my body could be in. And there's only a very limited number of those that can survive. Um, uh, survive and, you know, continue to survive across time. So that's where my body temperature is at a certain temperature. My pH is at a you know, certain pH, there are all these things that kind of need to work. So uh, what the body does is say that there are these states and deviations from those states are surprising, um, surprising in like the information theoretic sense. So we've got an internal model of what we should be like, but we also model the external world because the external world can bring about um, surprising changes to the, uh, to the organism's body. Right. And I, so I guess the point of clarification that I, I might be searching for is the complex systems that are, well, you know, if, if they're engaging in this uh, free energy minimization, they are trying to minimize the surprises, like how they're trying to minimize the number of states that they reach internally. So minimizing surprise there, but um, they're also trying to minimize um, just how surprising the events in the external world are as well, right? Because those events can translate into death or, you know, um, bodily degradation or something. So there's two kind of surprisal minimization events or uh, activities going on. It's, it's minimizing surprise of internal states and minimizing surprise of what the hell's going on out, out, on, out in, the, in the individual world, uh, in the external world. And organisms kind of engage in this, um, they, they kind of sample the environment. This is like where active inference comes in. They, they act in the world, they take in sensory data, and then they update their models to try to ensure that their model is more accurate. And the reason why 
um, like it's impossible to have a perfectly accurate model because it's just, you know, impossible. It's like the world is incredibly complex and there's too much going on and we can't, we don't, can't store all that data. We don't have the computational capacity to, you know, compute all that sort of stuff. So we need to, um, be, our models need to be more simple, like good, like good enough and, or as simple as possible, but no simpler, right? Or is something like that. Um, I think exactly like that. Okay. So is that a good kind of characterization of it from your perspective? I mean, I, I think it's great. Um, I think it was beautifully expressed. Uh, I mean, some, I've just been, I'm trying to write something about the free energy principle now, because in, in one of my, I'm doing, you know, undergrad honors and I'm trying to integrate this into something and I'm just like, Oh my God, how, I don't even know if I quite get it. So I'm trying to, Trying to write about it, and <laughs> I think you do. I, I think you, you you're really um, you really captured um, much of it beautifully. I, I guess the the one places where the one place where I might potentially um, a, a Fristonian might um, quibble would be and and like with respect to active inference. Um, they would want to emphasize uh, that the action itself is understood as a kind of inference and that you, um, so it's in addition to like actively sampling the environment to refine your models, um, which would relate to things like, uh, from like machine learning, like artificial curiosity, but in addition to this sort of active engagement to make your models better, um, the action in terms of generating, making your models fit better by changing the world as itself constituting an inference. I think that's completely consistent with what you just said, that they might want to emphasize that point. So the action itself is an inference. Because I think from, from reading, like from what I've read, like, like we like we are just constantly engaging in predictions and because like trying to take in all the sense, all sense data and then interpreting it and then putting it back together is kind of, just really, really hard. So what we do is um, we just make predictions about the world is going to look like and anomalous events we recognize and assimilate. But everything else, like everything that I'm seeing is actually a bit of a prediction. But if, you know, a dinosaur was to poke its head through your window, I would, my body would be like, oh, that was surprising. And then I would, you know, hone in on, on that anomalous event. There's no dinosaur there, by the way. Don't need it. Like, I know you didn't look over your shoulder, but... <laughs> the yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly right. I, I mean, the one issue that um, I guess free energy theorists might want to emphasize is um, so I, I think you can engage in different ways with this um, framework where um, within so like for instance. I sometimes think of it as like this um, onion of like increasingly like specific claims. And so like at the broadest shell, you would have like the free energy principle as a, as this general systems theory and almost a kind of metaphysics by almost, I mean a kind of metaphysics. You then go in a little bit more and then you would start to get like these process theories associated with it. So how is it that you, um, what must you do to minimize your free energy? And so then, I think it was around, was it uh, 2017, um, Carl um, introduced the uh, active inference like formally as a process theory of 
a, a normative model of what an agent must do to minimize free energy. And then you can have all sorts of additional claims that you may or may want, may or may not want to endorse. So for instance, so then within the Bayesian brain, the idea is you might think of um, perception as being a kind of Bayesian inference and maybe under some circumstances um, achieving a kind of like optimality, not necessarily in terms of being a faithful um, depiction of the world, but in terms of um, you know, uh, basically keeping track of the different probabilities, weighing them by their relative precisions, your relative confidence in each of them. And um, if you do this and you keep doing this, this should be the best you can do. You take in all information and you weigh it by your confidence, um, given that your confidence, uh, given that you can keep updating and, and make your confidence ever, well, ever better well calibrated. And then there's other ideas like um, uh, mechanistic implementational theories like um, predictive processing or predictive coding, where you might think of cortex or nervous systems or all biotic systems as doing a, as minimizing prediction error through a particular type of hierarchical uh, message passing and updating. Um, and some of the ways you were describing it, um, I think it would be like the most, I think it gets at a lot of the power of this like complex framework and it, um, so some would say that it's, it's too Helmholtzian, that it's still like thinking of the system as something that's having a model and that this model is like a thing separate from the system and that, and that you're, you're taking care of this model. Um, mm -hmm. for the, the, the hardcore free energy theorists, um, the system is the model itself. And so it's like, there's no difference. Um, but I think, and this, I guess, comes at like some of these debates that are going on within activism and in debates like within free energy circles of, um, uh, I think you can have both. I think you can both say that the system as a whole is a type of modeling process but that there are subsystems which are more like the kinds of models you would think of in cybernetics as a controller and a governor and um and, and my personal thinking i ascribe to this i'm 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 not uh so, so there's sometimes a, a debate between um people who are more cognitivist this view from cognitive science which would um, um emphasize things like representations and explicit models and knowledge structures um but then you would have like the inactivist schools, which would uh, not necessarily talk about representation or models, but would more think of dynamic cup uh, the coupling of dynamic systems as uh, as being the reality, and that uh, these things like representations might not have any meaningful existence. They might be like a way of describing the attractor structure from without, but that we have to be careful not to like to reify these things um, to actually say, wait, there are representations uh, that there are models of the world that are, that are separate from the engagement, from the enactment. Uh, I personally think they're both. Um, I think when, especially when you get to systems as complex as us, really big um, hierarchical or hierarchical systems that you can get basically inner loop or you can get basically subsystems that are not immediately engaging with the environment and that these systems, these internal systems would be more like uh, 
uh, models of the kind that people would recognize from cybernetics or control theory, that these would be uh, or cognitive or good old fashioned cognitive science, that you can have both this inactive embodied engagement with the world where some things you the to talk of representation is actually a, a very coarse grained way of viewing things that is actually just a dynamic intelligent adaptive coupling um but that you can also have on top of that um explicit modeling and i, I personally think we have both i don't know okay. if that makes sense so yeah just I, i'll just see if i can see if i'm understanding this so the inactivists are like um, the actual system itself is the model. Um, it might seem like there is a representational model that is operating within the system, but that's not the case. It's actually just these little subsystems that are coupled together that embody, or maybe perhaps embody is the wrong term, but enact the model, that they are the model. Whereas, which I think, did you say the cognitivists or the others are like, yes, but there's, well, maybe, but perhaps there is inside these individual systems, even they may be couples, but within those, there may be representational models um, that are informing or perhaps separate to the, the bigger one that they are contributing to. Yeah, that that's perfect. Like that, that's really well said. Like, I, I think that would express like within uh, like uh, the free energy circles, you see that diversity of thought. Some people lean more, yeah. Like radical and activists, like oh, I'm not going to talk about representations or or models as much. Like this is just like a way of, of talking. But like let's not. And then there's other people who say no. The, there's uh, like Jacob Howey, um, Alex Kiefer, I think. But it would be like, um, no, no. Let's look at things that are more like we we would talk about in cognitive science of and, and control theory. You have models that you are uh, curating and caring mm. for that are governing you separate from the entirety of you yeah yeah i th this kind of that vibes with me more just from like a phenomenological contained within sorry yeah yeah from a phenomenological that word sometimes gets me um perspective because i feel like you know in my unconsciousness i have models of the way things work um and if they are appearing in you know uh my awareness uh you know my my consciousness or some degree of it then that could be considered some form of model that's separate to the underlying stuff, at least from my perspective. You know, I could, I could just come up with a toy model of anything. Um, and perhaps that model, perhaps what, I, what I'm getting wrong there is there's two different types of descriptions of model. They're like maybe two definitions that are kind of going past each other, uh, but not quite connecting. But, you know, like right now in, in this conversation, I'm trying to model what you're saying. but that's not representation of everything or well, that's not being like that. That's separate from that, that the model that I'm trying to create to interpret and understand this conversation is separate to a lot of the other models that are going on in my body. Depends on the time scale. I mean, you know, eventually they all get mixed up together. Uh, but yeah. Um, and, and like the immediate unfolding, uh, there's a lot I'm not conscious of. And there does seem to be this like separate factorization where it's, you know, uh, there is some degree of um, independence of different modeling efforts, and that, and, and there's some things which are um, just not available to me, even if I wanted to have access to them. I just, even though there might be a kind of intelligence and a, an implicit modeling going on, maybe even um, a modeling that's involving my brain as part of it, just because that's there doesn't mean that 
um, that is uh, represented in a way where I can access it or re-represented in any kind of um, way that would be recognizable or would be um, meaningfully impactful for the um, the moment-to-moment changes in my uh, experience, in my phenomenology. Mm. So it might not be comp- consciously apprehendable. It might be like lower level going on underneath and it doesn't poke through to the surface so that we can be like, aha. And you can think of that like, um, you know, so, so it depends like how, uh, how radical you want to go along which dimensions within activism. So some people would argue that, for instance, um, there are people who would actually argue they want, they want to consider consciousness to be actually uh, something that extends not just within the organism, but actually into the world, into the environment. And that it's actually the whole process that isn't even, uh, it's not, it's not even, not only not brain bound, it's not even body bound. It's um, like, um, like Chalmers and Andy Clark uh, with with extended mind, people might talk about like an extended consciousness. Um, And there's, you know, I, I would, I personally tend to go with, um, I guess, radical with res- radically inactive with res- with respect to treating mind as extended, where I consider mind to be modeling, mind to be intelligence, but consciousness itself. I would actually push way back, not even to the whole nervous system, but actually to um, uh, in more inner processes, inner systems that are more shielded and that are hierarchically higher and are capable of um, giving you an estimate of the overall system and its engagement. And so, uh, but there would be a particular scope over which that information would be exchanged, over which those modeling efforts would happen on what there's a particular spatial and temporal scope, and that some things might be in and some things might be out on the timescales at which your experience is generated. Mm. That kind of maps onto my understanding of well, like like how I think about these things as well. I mean, there's no reason why, you know, the feeling of my sock against my toe kind of needs to, you know, fit into my, like be integrated into my conscious awareness at all times or all these sorts of things. It kind of makes sense from just an efficiency standpoint to just kind of discard a lot of this, this information that may not be super relevant to conscious experience. But right now, if I'm thinking about it, then it obviously becomes relevant because I am now talking about it. And then I'm like, oh, there we go. Nice fluffy socks. Um, so this, I want to talk about intelligence, uh, for a little bit, because I feel, I don't know, I'm not very familiar with the literature at all, but I feel like this could be a big, um, one way of developing some generalized, um, definition or measurement of intelligence that, you know, goes across systems, um, because, like, what is intelligence? Uh, like, how do we think of it? You know, it's the, uh, you just kind of learn things quickly. Um, you can process things faster. You know, you, you can undergo, you, you can complete complex operations faster than perhaps someone else. You can store more information. Um, I think it could be kind of reframed in these free energy terms and um, be a measurement of sorts. Is that kind of, because I, I don't know what the literature says, so perhaps this has all been said and a lot more. Like, could you give me a, a, a give me your take on, on this? It's actually really, I think you're right that the free energy principle is um, actually very relevant to trying to have formal models of intelligence. And I, I think it's actually interesting that it's not 
more often framed in that way. Um, and it, but, it takes into account curiosity as well and creativity, which I think is really interesting because, you know, when you try to measure intelligence, like you could score 180 on Mensa, you, you could be a member of Mensa, you could have like a crazy IQ, but you wouldn't, um, you might not be super creative. So like, the, you know, the way I think about it is, uh, and this is why I think creativity and curiosity trumps intelligence because an intelligent person can learn something very quickly that they can learn a, a process. Well, a, perhaps someone with high IQ, when I say intelligent, I mean like perhaps in the, in the more, uh, limited um, conventional sense in which a lot of us use that, that term. An intelligent person can learn something quickly and they can apply it quickly. They can, they can maybe undergo the, the processes necessary to achieve a goal quickly. Um, but the creative person can say, nah, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to ride a horse to work. I'm going to create a car and I, I'm just going to, you know, just trump all these really intelligent people with this form of ingenuity. Um, so even though they, the, the, the creative person may not have the same intellectual horsepower, to put it one way, than the, than the hyper-intelligent people, their ability to generate new ideas and new technologies, you know, these um, just ways of manipulating the world better is just, you know, it, it, it beats intelligence in, in, in some respects. And I feel like the free energy principle or, you know, this, this sampling of the environment, developing a model, um, being curious um putting things together i think kind of brings it together in a better way I, i'm not super familiar with intelligence literature either so you know i mean, so like, I mean intelligence like that I, I i really like what you're saying that um there is something uh smarter than the ways intelligence is oftentimes understood and that creativity and uh active curiosity being part of that and I guess among different, I mean, usually like, so I guess in, in psychology, intelligence is understood as a kind of um, latent factor that's um, put forward to account for the fact that a lot of these different capacities all seem to hang together. And so if you do a factor analysis and you're seeing, okay, uh, what varies with what? And is there like a clustering of these different capacities? Among all of them, they seem to they seem to have this high level factor structure, and so G, the G factor would be what combines all these different capacities of uh, mental, uh, different kinds of mental prowess. If you're talking in, um, and then within there, what's most important for actually being smart in the ways that are meaningful? You'll have people differ in terms of what they emphasize or what. Um, uh, yeah, well, what they think is more or less important or how they frame it. So you might have people who are um, really, uh, they think that things like uh, mental simulation and the ability to <clears throat> precisely uh, manipulate and rotate things in your mind, like having like a working memory that's, that's, that's powerful and flexible, that might be the thing. Or you might have like yeah. more knowledge. I've got based. an aphantasia. I can barely see anything in my brain. In my you mind. do. Yeah, like if I close my eye, if you ask me to picture something i can't see it like i might get a little flash of it but i can't hold it there and i kind of it's quite abstract i can kind of see everything i can see but not see it's just like um kind of like echolocation but it, you know if, it's kind of like if i close uh, it's really hard to communicate these you know these they, this experience to someone who but you know because um, we all have these unique what experiences like but <laughs> yeah 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 
yeah, it's good and bad. <laughs> um, but yeah, I can't see things, but I have like this, there is like spatial awareness there and I kind of know how it all fits together. And I might get flashes of like the shape or the color or something, but it's not like an image. Whereas, you know, um, my partner, she can just see things and her dad was a painter. Um, and he could just, you know, close his eyes and, or he could just imagine, um, whatever and just paint it perfectly. Whereas, you know, I, <laughs> what I would, what I would, uh, if I was to try to do that, I would like have some stick figure with, you know, squiggly lines of hair. Oh, there's, I mean, there's actually yeah. a lot to talk about there. And, um, well, I have this hypothesis that people with aphantasia, because we can't see things. Well, I don't, I don't, I think on the scale of one to five, I'm like a two, I'm not like full cognitively blind for lack of a better term. Um, I, I think that people like, I think this guy called Walter Viet, I don't know if I said his last name properly. He's, um, he's doing his PhD at uh, the university of Sydney. Um, he's, he did like a little sample, he did a little Twitter, um, survey or something. And I think people who study maths and philosophy are overrepresented, um, as having aphantasia. And I think because if you can't see things as well, visually, perhaps you get better abstract acuity, you know, you can engage with abstract ideas better because maybe everything is more of an abstraction to you than someone who's has, you know a very high mental level of visual, a high level of visual mental acuity. Even go in both directions. We're like engaging in abstractions, maybe at certain like sensitive ages, like certain patterns of thought outcompete mental imagery in some ways. Mm. Um, and your some of your work, like the, um, we'll come to this, but you know, the, I think in some of your work, you've kind of proved that, or you, you show that, you know, if sexual procul uh, sexual um god it's a bit early for me what's the word um sexual orientation. orientation can be kind of like a um what's the what am i looking for it's like a path that you walk down you know like the, the more Sorry, you walk path. down a certain path yeah yeah and the more you traverse that path the deeper the 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 pathway the deeper the um the rut the the whatever however you want to call it um is formed so is that kind of that kind of fits in here the same similar kinds of looping looping effects and with respect to development where like you have the circular causation and which led what at which points can become very hard to disentangle but where the whole way through we have to consider the you know processes that feed back on themselves um at different with a certain historicity and that yeah. this is going to be part of whether we're talking about um people's uh affective tendencies or their cognitive tendencies uh, before i forget though with respect to intelligence um i guess a, a few more th things would be um in like ai and machine learning um so one formal definition of it uh would be um I guess from marcus hutter and shane leg and they would describe intelligence as the ability to achieve goals across a wide range of environments and so that kind of definition, I think, would support what you're saying about it's not just like being good at knowing things, but it's good at knowing how to know things and learn new things and bring things together in different ways for the sake of achieving goals. Um, and then and if you you'll get a different approach, um, I guess, recently, um, uh, Francois Cholet, um, who will say that will really emphasize not the achieving goals, but the learning and the idea. And so this would be more related to curiosity and, and creativity that could come from that. But the, um, 
it would be the ability to learn new things and generalize your knowledge above and beyond what you already have, above and beyond a certain set of core knowledge, your priors. How good are you at learning new things? That'd be another way of approaching it. And it seems like the free energy principle and active inference could be compatible with all of these, depending on where you engage with it. Um, specifically, once you get to the process theory of active inference, um, you, what you're doing is you're not just minimizing free energy of like being in a particular state and just having a good perceptual model. But with active inference, you're trying to achieve goals in the future and you are planning um, to achieve these self-system preserving goals across time. And for the sake of this, you end up um, looking for information. You end up seeking out um, opportunities for learning. You end up becoming curious. You end up trying trying out new things so that your modeling efforts will um, pay off uh, overall in the long run. Um, I, I guess, you know, if I, I mean, ultimately, you know, intelligence, you know, it's just a word, like all, like all our words. Um, and there's no one meaning uh, that's like the one, you know, that, that Plato's philosopher king has written down, and that's the only one. Uh, but I guess for me, I, I like um, uh, uh, modeling ability given resource constraints, or you can think of it as inference and learning ability given uh, constrained resources. And the better you are at learning, the better you are at inferring. That's how that's how intelligent you are. Um, there's some interesting connections actually between um, the, these formal models from artificial intelligence of things that like uh, Shane Leg and Twitter came up with, with the ability to achieve goals. They have this um, embodied in an architecture called AIXI um, as a formal model of intelligence, and there that actually has uh, deep parallels to the free energy principle, and that you're basically with the AIXI handling. What you're doing is you're specifically um, trying to achieve goals, but you're doing so in a way where you are um, using this um, using this um, set of um, it's, it's based on algorithmic decision um, information theory, and so your your modeling efforts uh, you are penalizing them based on the uh, length of the description of the program the abstract program that you would use to describe what you're doing. And so basically the shorter the program, the, 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 the more you come out ahead. And so in a way it's the same setup, good fitting modeling um, with Occam's razor in both cases. And so in a way it really, that I, I'd say that whether we're talking about just modeling the world in a, just to figure out what's going on or achieving particular goals in the world, um, it seems like there there is a convergence across a lot of these different perspectives uh, and a lot of overlap. Mm. Yeah, I, I remember seeing one of your tweets probably six months ago or something, and I think we might have spoken about it briefly, but um, not in this conversation, but prior to. But how intelligence needs to be embodied. Um, so if we want to build these artificially intelligent systems. Uh, perhaps, you know, general artificial intelligence, it needs to be embodied in some sense. It can't just be, um, I guess, it depends what you mean by embodied, but does that strike any bells? Does that uh, remind you of, didn't, didn't you give a talk at DeepMind or something um, on something like this? Um, the the DeepMinders uh, at, at NeurIPS 2018, they had um, 
I've had since I've been at a safety workshop, AI safety workshop. Mm-hmm. And uh, the people there were um, talking about different perspectives on how you can make AI systems safe, whether we're talking about just uh, reinforcement learners in an industry context or even things like super intelligence. And uh, I was coming in and talking about um, what we might be able to uh, learn about intelligence and and safety with respect to it from the human example and so for um for biological systems it seems that the way we're capable of becoming good modelers or the way we're able to acquire a rich knowledge base from which we can uh make inferences and learn new things there's this bootstrapping process and so and you can describe this bootstrapping of knowledge process in different terms so if you're um, in cognitive science, you might talk about um, a chaining of analogies. Whether if you're thinking of like uh, uh, George Lakoff, like cha- that would be chaining of analogies from your embodied experience. Um, uh, Deirdre Gettner would say similar things, but be less like emphasizing the embodiment aspect as like the base of knowledge. But you could talk about like new things that you're learning by reference to older things, and you can say this is a chaining of, of analogies. Of interpreting the new in terms of the old, but this is really the same thing as a uh, um, Bayesian inference, where basically you combine your prior knowledge with your present observation, you weigh them by your respective confidences, and then you create posterior or your new knowledge, your new expectation of what it is, and this then serves as a prior for the next round of figuring things out. And but this idea though of um, thinking of things in terms of so like applying your prior, what's going on? Really, that is an act of analogy to say that this situation is like the previous situation. And so it's a, it's a very similar thing, but expressed uh, rather, I say like analogy is a core of cognition and Bayesian cognitive science. They're both these bootstrapping stories and ultimately I think saying very similar things, but from different frames. So I guess where, where the thinking, so where my thinking is coming into this is I'm suggesting that um, to get enough traction, to get like a toehold in the bootstrapping process, that you can actually really um, come to uh, robust, flexible, encompassing world models that actually are fit to purpose for figuring out what's going on and getting through the world. Um, the, biological systems might have needed t- a certain trick of actually using the constraints and affordances of the body itself as a source of foundational priors, or you would say reliably learnable posteriors. Um, so, like, if you take um, your hand, you're like an infant learning its hand. So, you'll actually almost never get a better condition for learning than that, because you have multiple data streams, non-overlapping in their uh, richness and ambiguity, so you, so they can correct for each other and be synergistic, all converging, all varying in real time. You can you you have the mobility. Are you referring to fingers? Fingers, but yeah, just learning your hand as an object. Like, what is my hand? If you're um, so people like Liz Spelke would talk about core knowledge, and like, and and this would um, you have you have things like uh, conservation. So you'd have um, objectness. There are objects in the world. Uh, age agentiness. Like, there are people who do things. Um, time, space, cause, different like things that are kind of core aspects of basic things that let you 
build a mind, but you need these, um, so to say, like, I guess in machine learning, inductive biases in there first. You need these priors. And so the, the claim I make is that the body itself is a really good prior or source of reliably learnable posteriors that you're going to really be able to learn your body much better than so if you're just an infant like staring at the world and you can't interact with it at all well you're dealing with this uh, this inverse problem of like things could be small and close or big and far away you you don't know where things begin or end they're always moving around like how do you make sense of it where do you begin and, and so the, the claim i make is what gives you purchase is you learn a system that's more fruitfully constrained first, and that's your own body. So you have the converging modalities, you have the modality of action. When I do things, that converges with what I feel. I can resolve my uncertainty by moving it about. I can touch my body to itself, so I have like body-body interaction. It feels like something, so you attend to it, you focus the optimization power on learning this thing. And so across all these different like uh, features, I, I think it's basically a near ideal learning curriculum that lets you constrain the inference space enough that makes this bootstrapping of intelligence trackable. I, I I can't prove it, but I would go as far as to say that this isn't just um, what biological systems need to do, but it might be the case that all intelligences that we'll ever be thinking of will need to do something very similar. That like you could throw all the compute in the world at it, even you know future compute and all the data and the inference space might still be too under constrained to actually figure out an, an, a world model, figure out what's in the world without using this kind of learning curriculum off of uh, starting with this easier kind of training wheel system of the body. And it also provides that. some um, something to it's it provides the system like whatever you whatever you want to call it with something that the data is relevant to, right? You need to ha like the importance of one thing being in relation to another is critically important to understand what either thing actually is. If you just have all that data and you just like throw a, a machine learning algorithm at it and be like, figure it out, it might not develop something that we would call intelligence. It might be able to pick out certain patterns, but it won't be able to integrate those into anything um, that we would consider to be intelligent or you know um, even vaguely resembling consciousness you use the word relevance i think that's really key the other thing about another way of putting it and the other key thing that i think embodiment provides is it helps you tackle the frame problem the problem of what will be relevance to the situation what is the the of, of everything that could go into the mix right now what is the scope of things that you ought to consider and if you're always moving from this place of leveraging your prior knowledge and specifically being, I guess, tethered to your embodied engagement with the world, you, which you can kick free of that, you know, tethering to different degrees. You can imagine different things. You could have different types of experiences, some psychedelic experiences like embodiment falls away. But that if you're always, if you're almost always in your modeling efforts and in, in your conscious modeling efforts, thinking of embodied engagements, that really narrows the scope of what's relevant, narrows what you should attend to, and that then mm. makes the problem more tractable. Yeah, and that done over time. Oh, sorry. Continue. Uh, I was just going to say that um, you know we've been doing that for basically since day one in a way. And and when I say day one, I mean you know we've we're the process of a lot of evolution. And because of that, rather than seeing like I, I see objects, right? And objects they seem very obvious to us, you know. But in reality, they are 
um, far less easy to apprehend. Like just starting from scratch, you just can't apprehend it. Um, you don't like, how do you know what's separate from what, how do you know that, you know, a tag is actually a part of the bag or if it, is it separate to, um, I'm, I was holding up a bag for those who are just listening. Um, and I think that's what early, um, robotics, uh, that's what they struggled with because there's actually like, we just, um, intuitively or, um, yeah, just intuitively uh, interpret and see the world as filled with objects that have defined uh, boundaries. Um, and that's not immediately obvious just from taking in sense data. Um, like we, it's obvious to us because we've just um, evolved that way. And, you know, it makes sense for us to ascribe boundaries to certain things and to say one thing is another because obviously it helped us live and survive. Um, but trying to get artificial intelligence systems to do that, um, it's, it's not an, an easy task. We're still struggling with it and the, the enduring problems of AI, like we've made progress in, in vision, but, um, and the language model is recently very impressive, but they're brittle. They're not, um, they're still really vulnerable to these adversarial examples. You change something slightly and they just get it completely wrong. And the reason is this, they don't actually have a real causal model of the world like we do. Yeah. I've, I think a great example of this is, um, is if you ask, I don't remember which program it was or whatever, but it was basically you ask a this this artificial intelligence system to generate um, pictures of dumbbells, and all the dumbbells have hands attached to them. Um, yeah. yeah. Did, did you hear well, that? Like they're holding arms, like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the dumbbells are holding arms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I actually think think that's funny. The arms um, are holding dumbbells. There's like an arm attached to them. That yeah, need not be yeah. the case. Yeah, it's, um, um, I guess so to loop around. The, so the reason I was talking at an AI safety workshop is I was arguing that a lot of these things that people are concerned about um, end up being somewhat moot or sidestepped under this biomimetic regime. So and under the, so people like Nick Bostrom argue that um, intelligence and values are completely orthogonal. And that you can have any degree of intelligence paired with any value structure. And that because of this, um, and because values are complicated, um, any intelligence we're likely to build, let's say we build a very powerful optimizer for getting things done in the world, but the values aren't, aren't phrased just right. That the complexity of our values isn't captured. Well, it'll do things like it'll set whatever is not specified, it'll probably set to zero. And then whatever is specified in the utility function, uh, it, it might realize in perverse ways. And so... Um, the most famous example being the paperclip maximizer. Um, yeah. Where yes, this is... For, yeah, for the unfamiliar, you know, there's... We build this device and all it's meant to do is uh, build a lot of paperclips and unfortunately it's like a super intelligent um, paperclip builder and it just destroys the universe in its one and true... Uh, in, in pursuit of its one true goal of just making paperclips. There are only paperclips. That is the, the end game for existence. That's how and the king of all the paperclips will be the Microsoft Clippy. Laughing. Raining over the universe. Staring into the void with untold menace. Yeah. Uh, hanging, uh, high-fiving with Cthulhu. Um, yeah. <laughs> That's one way we could do it. But um, I think that doesn't quite apply to systems we're likely to build. Um, and it doesn't apply to us. Um, I guess I, I wouldn't, in that 
our intelligence and our values, they're intertwined from the beginning in multiple ways, both in terms of the way we engage with the world and figure things out, but also probably I would say the lion's share of our intelligence is the cultural endowment. It's natural language. Um, so intelligence, so values are coming in first, a certain type of organismic value of just this kind of embodied bootstrapping process. You have some value intelligence coupling done, but I think it really comes in with language and that and, and social learning. Like I am garbling my words, I'm being vague, but you have some sense for what I might mean because you have some idea for what I'm trying to say and vice versa because we're fairly similar. We have similar ways of life. We tend to value overall similar things with differences, but enough, there's enough common ground that you can constrain the inference space of what I might mean and that my hallucination can match your hallucination. And then we can, we can keep, you know, moving the meat bits and have them vibrate and we move them and, and we can co-hallucinate in a way that lets us coordinate and, and have synergy. Uh, it's not clear that this can be done without knowing about what the world is like from engaging with it and engaging with it in a similar enough way that you can by analogy or use your own experience as a prior for who you're communicating with. And so now without natural language, you know, we didn't encode all of our knowledge in like a predicate calculus of like a formal, like we didn't just put it all in this database with perfect logical expressions. Uh, rather, most of our knowledge is encoded in this messy way, good old-fashioned natural language. It's rife with metaphor. And the reason that we can grok the metaphor is because we have this common base domain and we can uh, of, our, of our shared experiences. And uh, also intention. Like a lot of it, it's not in, it's the pre a lot of the meaning is not in just in the, the raw semantics of like, the way syntax is structuring things and what's referenced, but there's a pragmatics of the communication. And without the pragmatic code, it's going to be pretty hard too. But how do you have the pragmatic code unless you have a good theory of mind? How are you going to have a good theory of mind with reference to what? And, and so it really helps if you have the similarity. Now, I mean, I'll, I'll grant um, it, it's still non-trivial. There's still non-trivial safety issues if we ever got to this point of creating like human mimetic systems and that like psychopaths exist. And there's like, you know, our values and intelligence, they're coupled, but they can go wildly different across us. So there's non-trivial issues there. Just probably not paperclip maximizers. Nothing like mm. that. That's... Yeah. And this, uh, you know, I if, if you take this free energy perspective um, from, you know, intelligence and values, like intelligence... Like what do we value? We value survival, like continuity of our bodies and that of our, you know, continuity of our bodies and that of our, you know, friends and family, perhaps our species, perhaps that of others across time, right? So, like, and that is realized through um, the these active inferences, this, this free energy this free energy principle. So they are, and, you know, if, if we characterize that as some form of intelligence, like they are inextricably connected. And I'm thinking, like, I think we'll come to this. I, I, I want to put a pin in this, and we come to this towards the end of our discussion because I think it fits. Yeah, we'll put a paperclip in it, <laughs> and uh, we'll. we'll, we'll <laughs> yeah, and we'll come to this uh, towards. I'm the end sorry. Of, I'm so sorry. No, no, no. It was perfect. It was perfect. I'm just, I'm just embarrassed that I didn't say it. 
I wish I wish I had you know thought of it. But see, you know, this is the creativity coming out. You know, it's not just the it's not just about being intelligent, but being able to come up with new awesome things. Um, Keep the puns coming. Call me the yeah. punisher. <laughs> Sorry, um, so you're, putting a, you're putting a pin in something. Putting a pin on it. Putting a pin on it. Um, okay, so I, I think like that's a perfect I, example. I'm putting a pin in it. Like you could have like a database of idioms, but there's like a sense of you know what that means because you're visualizing a particular mm. type of thing, and this is now relating to, to particular class of experiences. And now you're getting a sense for like pinning down meanings. You're getting a yeah. sense of like having a grip on something that later you can reference it. So the earth, it's not, it's, there's a whole, there's a simulation that was run mm. that you were able to unpack, your generative models were able to unpack it because of a particular kind of experience. I'm going to put a pin in it. You can have a database yeah. of idioms, but th that's not, we can come up with a new idiom like right now. Like I'm going to put a paper clip mm -hmm. on it. Like we can, yeah. I don't um, think that, this, that might be technically wrong. You can't come up with a new idiom right now, but, but we could, we, yeah, we could yeah, start. Yeah. yeah. They need to be like, maybe like the definition of an idiom would need to, like it needs to be, exist in the minds of X number of people for it to be, you know, uh, considered an idiom. Like that's, I, this is why I'm kind of excited about this idea of um, like, you know, we hear lots of talk about like, what is knowledge and blah, 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 blah. Um, but what, what's kind of cool by taking this, I, I guess, highly physical materialistic perspective is that, um, knowledge is embodied. It, it is like, it is, um, it, it, it's, it exists in a substrate of some sorts, right? Like you can't just have knowledge that's not connected to material, like to matter at all, right? For us to have knowledge, for us to have something, some, you know, um, information that we can interpret that information needs to be uh, it needs to exist in some sort of material substrate like the or the material substrate gives rise to the information and given that information or you know can be of can have varying degrees of utility then those certain arrangements of matter have different ethical values right so like the piece of paper with um, I don't know Einstein's theorem or you know whatever written on it might be f like a hell of a lot more valuable, um, <clears throat> ethically valuable than paper with, you know, just like random letters on it. Um, so there's like ethical value tied to arrangements of matter that are inert, except for our ability to take useful information away from it and then put it to use, put it, put it to work. It's like very prag, it's just, you know, highly pragmatic. It's just like, and we can kind of figure out what works because it's just, you know, like, oh, this is good information because it does good things. I mean, I'm no, I'm no um, philosopher of science or anything. So for those listening who are, like, forgive I, me. for I'd say you are. And um, the, yeah, it's pragmatic the whole way through. And there's an interest the whole way through. We're not just modeling for the sake for kicks. We're not just modeling so we can say, I got it right. We're yeah. modeling to the, you know, our, 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 our models, our knowledge, it's tool, it's tools in the, in the metaphorical hands of a hungry animal. It's, mm -hmm. it's how we, and not just of any hungry animal, but of, of people with yeah. like who trying to, and there's an ethics from, from the beginning of like trying to have us be a certain type of being with others, realizing a certain shared way of life. 
and this is structuring. So our, our whole knowledge base is they're they're, all, they're structured in these ways. This is yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's cool that you know words are these. Like I, I the way I think about words is that there's an infinite number of patterns out there, right? There are so many different ways in which we can interpret the world, but there are some regularities um, and we slap a label on them and we come to agree that this word means that maps onto this set of patterns reasonably well, but not perfectly because you can't, there's no perfection, right? But it's just like, it's good enough for us to use such that we can coordinate ourselves better in pursuit of maintaining social order and surviving across time. And, you know, these words, they evolve across time um, because, you know, the, the meanings change, um, the patterns that um, give rise to them might be a little bit different. Um, you know, like justice, for instance, like, you know, we, perhaps justice today means something very different to well, like the material, like the, the material correlates of justice are probably far different now than they were 10,000 years ago because, you know, um, we didn't have cars back then. And, you know, going on a terrible rampage with your car it couldn't have happened. So the material correlates that give rise to that aren't exactly the same. But the information, like the way they are structured together, um, the way we interpret it and the, the, the effects those patterns give rise to. So it could be, you know, murder with a club 10,000 years ago and it could be, you know, someone rampaging with a car. Very different circumstances. But the way they kind of bring come together, um, there is this shared sense of something unjust happening or something wrong. How we have these shared, we have these shared, like, um, just ideas and it's imperfect, but good enough. Good enough is good enough. And this is something that really gets me about like the body as well. Right? Like there's no, we don't know things. Our cells aren't getting it absolutely perfectly. Like one small purchase, like, you know, what's that, that in, Chaotic in chaotic systems, or like the initial that's conditions initial can have, conditions. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But like that's not the case in our bodies. Like I don't. It doesn't really matter what happens at the level of one cell. Like I'm still going to be generally fine. Like they, these things don't really. Um, uh, I'm not going to. I think I'm, I'm. I might just befuddle my words here. But like the long story short is the amazing thing is that when it comes to navigating the world, uh, good enough. That uh, good enough is good enough. You don't need to be perfectly accurate. You just need to be like accurate enough. Like, yeah, I, I will meet you. But like, it's like words. They're almost like, like shelling points, like points of coordination outside of really being able to fully communicate. Like, so like we're, we're all, all words are wrong. Some words are useful enough or um, serviceable enough. And it's, so if I say like, let's meet by the Eiffel tower, any sort of number of things could be going differently. I can, you know, I get hungry along the way. Um, some, you know, in terms of like amplification, chaotic amplification from initial conditions, all sorts of things can start to diverge. But if we roughly though get the same sense of like Eiffel Tower and we wind up roughly in the same area of state space, well, now we can like share a croissant. <laughs> it's like, but, um, but everything else, not just, can but will be different everything and so it's like words just need to be good enough that you get a rough enough alignment so we can keep kicking things back and forth and our hopefully have our our grounded hallucinations decently enough grounded that we can get along in the world and that we can achieve goals but yeah 
Yeah. It makes me think of, you know, if we want to train um, systems like artificial intelligence systems that can kind of grok or understand the meanings of words. I mean, I think one of the best examples of how the meaning of a word has changed for me is just the term complexity, right? Like five to 10 years ago, complexity meant something completely different to me now. But now, uh, you know, because I've just spent the past few years, like really interested in complexity science. And now the, when I hear the term complexity, like my interpretation of it's completely different. And this is the same case for all sorts of words, right? Um, from like meme, like, you know, I think meme 20 years ago probably just uh, meant, like had like some sort of biological, uh, it, you know, it was Dawkins. Um, was it Dawkins who came up with the meme? Yeah. yeah. And, and now I get, yeah, like, sorry, but that's not what memes really are to me. Memes are the things that make me laugh. And I'm just thinking about how can we, like, how will we train the these artificial intelligence? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a positive evolution. I think it's good. Memes make the world a better place. <laughs> they help us understand each other. Yeah, yeah. It, um, uh, to come back around to AI, it's it's just not at all clear to me, though, without experiences in the world and a roughly mammalian motivational structure that you have a snowball's chance um, in proverbial hell of actually being able to do what we're describing here. It's you. It's being able to get the right simulation from the right set of configurations, where the right is always wrong and just good enough. Um, but 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 to be able to unpack these ambiguous strings that could map onto like so many different things, and to actually get a reasonable simulation that when I generate my next string of sound or letters that you, uh, and we, we exchange, that as we go back and forth, there will be this consistency and we'll say, yeah, there's understanding there and that we can actually coordinate and build and plan. It's, I mean, you'll get some of, like, you'll, you'll, uh, you know, what's going on with natural language um, processing, it's, it's incredibly impressive. GPT-3 is amazing. It's just not enough to actually get us the bootstrap of cumulative cultural evolution. That's the secret of our success. The cultural endowment, that's the lion's share of intelligence. Mm. And so without that, I don't see how you're getting super intelligence without the linguistic bootstrap. And so, but now if values and ethics of these kinds are baked in from the ground floor, then this now creates path dependencies and, and mutual. This then makes it such that um, values and intelligence aren't orthogonal. They're deeply intertwined. They're not completely collinear either. They can still diverge wildly. We can understand each other and have radically different values. But it's not paper clips. And it, it's, it, it's a different game. Hmm. So I know we've spent a bit of time on um, the free energy principle. Um, I want to talk about um, cybernetics and the big five. Uh, mm. so the big five being a, the big five psychological trait, uh, model or the five factor model. Um, that's the most scientifically rigorous personality test or, um, model that we have, uh, at least to my knowledge. Um, so I understand that you've done some work, uh, with a guy called Colin DeYoung. Is that right? And he, he was he involved in the early days of the development of the big five or maybe not the early days, but you know, the, the torch was passed on to him or something or rather. Um, he's, um, 
so yeah, Colin DeYoung. Um, so the, I mean, the Big Five. It's it, it's it was before his time when it was first got going, but but he did some. Uh, I would say major um, enhancements to it, and so yeah. you know, starting out from uh, the lexical hypothesis that um, we talk about things that uh, that matter to us, and some of the things we talk about are meaningful and are uh, good good ways of clustering the world, um, and that you then do clustering over this. You do factor analysis, and then among all the different so ways, it's like people- abstracting, right? So you like see which ones fit together, and then over time, all these words that we used to describe people, they end up fitting into you know five or seven buckets, depending on how you look at it. Depending on yeah, so you can you can induce different factor structures depending on how you do it, but you, you would tend to get these big five um, uh, dimensions of variation. Um, yeah, uh, and, and so the big, for the, those who are unfamiliar, the big five: uh, openness to experience, um, conscientiousness. So, like how you know industrious or hardworking, tidy uh, you are. I am on this. I'm in the second percentile of conscientiousness, unfortunately. Um, uh, extroversion, uh, neuroticism. So your propensity to experience negative emotion and agreeableness. So like how, you know, polite and I don't know if polite's actually one of the dimensions, but how nice you are and how likely you are to go with the flow with other people. Um, I think it ends up being more like politeness with, um, the six, the, the six factor structure of like the hexaco model, um, okay. which is largely similar to the big five. With some okay. uh, interesting differences, but um, and so where Colin came into this is, I'd say, is a few different contributions. Um, in terms of just describing the the factor structure of personality, he um, helped to describe its hierarchical structure, and he specifically uh, would. Talk about this meta; these two meta traits above the big five um, of shared variants of the of these different subcomponents. So, above conscientiousness, agreeableness, and the inverse of neuroticism, uh, he called this higher order factor stability. And then, above um, openness and uh, extroversion, the other meta trait he he called um, plasticity. Uh, he also, within each of, underneath each of the big five, a more fine-grained factor structure, uh, described how there are two, and interestingly, um, for him, for his modeling, only two more fine-grained aspects underneath each of the big five trait domains. And so, if we're talking about uh, openness, you might fat, that one would be further factorized out into uh, openness to experience and intellect, conscientiousness. Um, Orderliness or um, industriousness, agreeableness, uh, politeness, or uh, compassion, or something like that. I mm-hmm. forget. Um, extroversion. Uh, um, yeah, I'm not going to remember them either. Enthusiasm oh, yeah. or um, assertiveness. And so it, with agreeableness, openness, conscientiousness, neuroticism. Uh, volatility or withdrawal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of those are like negatively correlated with each other. Oh, well, no, I, I was watching a talk the other day and like some of them, some of those factors 
that you would assume are correlated with one with one another actually aren't. Um, I think this is in in reference to um, uh, political leanings. So I think there's no correlation between agreeability, agreeableness, and political um, affiliation or polit- political leaning, but um, there are correlations between the aspects. So one aspect is correlated with one position, the other one's correlated with the other, and they cancel each other out. That's, and I think that's among, like, like Colin's an incredible thinker, and, like, among his contributions, that's one of the biggest ones, I'd say, because, like, people might oftentimes look for correlations at the level of the Big Five, and because at the aspect level, you might have these different qualitatively different things that can go across purposes to each other. If you average those together, you may not see something meaningful. But then if you yeah. go down and you look at the aspect level, then that's where you would get the 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 more powerful predictor variables and empirical mm. correlations. I, and then the should, it, should we consider it the big ten then? Like why have the five? You uh, know, perhaps yeah, perhaps like the like I, I mean I know nothing about this, but if that's if that's where more of the interesting stuff happens, uh, I guess there's no harm in like the the the, the abstraction. Like I guess for for more like coarse graining purposes, it's fine. Um, but yeah, it's just interesting. As you move upwards, it seems like you might get increasing degrees of universality across different types of agents or beings and across things like cultures. So if you or if you were um the more fine grained you go, the more particular it might be and the the more um this in terms of personality as characterizing um the the attracting states of a system, uh you there there's there's a cost uh of generalizability to going too fine grained, but yeah. no. I was just going to so for just to I guess kind of in, for the this for this conversation, the Big Five was initially developed um, as a you know a personality test for humans, right? Like for for people, but there it can be kind of reinterpreted in a way to describe uh, cybernetic systems, in, and that's the context in which we're going to be speaking about it from now on. Because I, I could sense that with one of the words that you mentioned, I can't remember, it kind of like had that cybernetic feel to it. I'm like, okay, maybe we should just kind of, you know, say it does describe human beings, like, you know, our personalities. But the interesting thing is it could be kind of interpreted in this more abstract, um, uh, you know, uh, universal way to describe the actions of systems. And that's one another reason to focus on the big five i'd say and that's like part of why colin called the cybernetic big five theory is he was um talking about this basic cybernetic cycle of um a system uh, having a goal and then or, or selecting goals and then uh looking at outcomes and then looking at the error with respect to the outcome and what you intended and then iterating and then updating and altering your approach that this this basic cycle of any goal seeking system uh, needs to select its actions, observe did it work, and then correct based on what happened. And so uh, with cybernetic big five, there he would um, map the big five onto these different phases 
of the cybernetic cycle. So like something like conscientiousness would be like the ability to uh, maintain the goal, a particular set of goals um, in the face of potential disruptions or, um, or keeping like the relative prioritization straight. Um, things like neuroticism would be like your sensitivity to error. Uh, things like extroversion would be how um, the degree of like the readiness of selecting your actions and, and the degree of uh, driving of the goal. Um, agreeableness, it's not necessarily as, as universal, but it would be like in a multi-agent context, like what type of goals do you pursue? Um, and openness, uh, that one would be more like, I guess, um, I forget how we, how we had that one within the cybernetic cycle. I, I think it was something like, um, so he, he'll, you tend, he'll tend to describe them both at the big five level and at the aspect level. Um, but that would be more related to what we were describing earlier in terms of uh, creativity and curiosity. Mm. So what does cybernetic mean? Because, you know, if I was to just hear cybernetic outside of, I, I, I know a little bit about it, but I would just think like, all right, Terminator, uh, cyborgs, um, you know, human computer integration. I'd think of all this sci-fi stuff. Um, <laughs> yes. And, you know, perhaps some of you listening to this right now are on the same page as me. So well, what does uh, cybernetics refer to? Uh, so I guess cybernetics, um, I think the term was coined by uh, Wiener. And uh, specifically, um, I guess it's, it's one dialogue of... Uh, Plato, I forget which one, but it's like um, uh, the word coming from a governance, um, either with respect to um, um, governance and regulation. So, to like what you would use to like steer a ship, you could govern the ship, or governance, like like political governance. Mm -hmm. um, and cybernetics, in some ways, is, is more commonly. Um, I, I think people will tend to talk about control theory more than cybernetics. But uh, cybernetics would be, I guess, uh, the study of goal-seeking systems that uh, regulate themselves via feedback, different types of feedback. And that would be the okay. essence of it. So, like, you might think of, like, a heat-seeking missile or a thermostat. Yeah. These would be cybernetic systems. They have a target, and then they regulate themselves based on feedback. They, they regulate their, their, their behavior, their state, to achieve those particular goals. And then the uh, the cybernetics movement um, took on different forms where people started uh, considering more and more things and, and tried to mo uh, model more and more systems in this way. And so then you would start to get like, things like second-order cybernetics. We are talking about the regulation that's going into um, uh, cyberneticians or people who are modeling, like governing the modeling process by which they are governed. Uh, it ended up um, becoming a, a very uh, like rich intellectual tradition, I'd say, that some would say went off the rails. I, I don't think so necessarily. Um, but the, the basics of it, though, would be um, treating people as goal-seeking systems governing, governed by different types of feedback relations. Just, it, I'd say that would be the essence of it. Yeah. And that fits right in with the free energy principle as well. Um, so what's really cool about this work is like um, the bringing together of uh, 
contemporary psychological science um because you know psychological science is like all the way up here in the levels of abstraction and the free energy principle kind of weaves a thread perhaps between all of them um and yeah, it, it just it just kind of fits. So you, you were talking about how we could kind of take these big five, and then um, there are two. Uh, we could put them into two groups: maintaining stability and um, plasticity, which kind of fits in with the, which fits in with the. This is how the, the in my mind the um, the thread of the FEP uh, fits in, right? Because we need to maintain. We need to be existing. Uh, this, my body needs to be stable. Like my environment needs to be somewhat stable so that I am also, you know, capable of surviving across time. And I also like need to learn, like according to this model, like we need to, we need to be plastic, which I hate that word plastic to develop, like to explain things that can change, you know, neuroplasticity. When I see plastic, I don't think like changeable, mutable, you know, I think like it's, it's in a shape. Sorry for the, for the, for the it's almost like the opposite of the, it's the opposite of what's intended. Yeah, I know. Definitely could have been a better word. No. Uh, I'm going to have to go plastic for now. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I, that's why I wanted to just touch on this um, personality thing uh, just briefly because it's quite – it just fits in uh, really, really well. And um, I've never really like thought about it as being able to generalize and as you were saying that gives the big five model a lot more validity because it can actually be generalizable to cybernetic systems to varying degrees of success or like um accuracy like we couldn't ascribe um the same type of psychological traits of course to um well, I, I think the term psychological here is not appropriate because not all cybernetic systems have psychological states, but they have, they behave in certain ways that map onto these psychological states that we um, uh, have, these traits that we have, you know, uncovered. What would agreeableness mean for like a, an asocial species um, yeah. uh, or conscientiousness? You might, um, uh, I, I think you, you tend to only see something like conscientiousness um, really some like fairly uh, sophisticated mammals and bir- and some birds maybe I don't know if people have looked mm. for in birds but you know um, I think people have looked for something like conscientiousness and I think um, or they've identified something kind of like it in, in dogs and maybe uh, chimps but okay. uh, what's the conscientiousness of um, a mouse amoeba. an amoeba even so you can go all the way down that. or let's say we're going I think you could get kind of an interesting mix when you get to more like um, uh, certain types of aggregate intelligences like societies um, mm. or, or agri- a- a- like collective agents. So a society as a whole, um, interestingly, so the stability and plasticity, um, I'm forgetting her name, but there was this um, rule makers, rule breakers. Um, I'm frustrated. So there's, there's, a, there's a fairly brilliant researcher who uh, wrote this book not too long ago, Rule Makers, Rule Breakers, and is characterizing different societies, not just by collectivism or individualism, but by um, basically the tightness or looseness of their norms. And this, I think, maps fairly well onto stability, is you hold your norms very tightly, everyone has to be with the rules, um, or uh, plasticity. 
you you let um, if, if it's more loose, you let things slide more. You let things change. You can explore different value structures, and so you'll see those two meta traits. They're you know applying to, to you know, really any cybernetic system is going to have this going to be needing to deal with the stability and plasticity and trade off between them. They uh, seem like they might be opposed, but they're actually interestingly synergistic. They can be opposed. You can't. So there's a trade-off that you can be so stable as to be rigid, or you can be so plastic as to be destabilizing. But in a world where everything's changing and uncertain, if you don't have a good amount of plasticity, if you're not learning, if you're not adjusting, you're going to lose that stability in a hurry. But similarly, if you don't have this base of like, like, you know, I got my homeostasis, I got like my basic organismic survival, I got this down, these, these basics, well, it's going to be hard to have that platform from which you can go explore and try out new things you're not going to be able to learn very much if you can if you, you're not going to learn much if you're dead and so they're actually synergistic but they're in a dynamic so colin calls it a dynamic tension and um and within um active inference um free energy principle and active inference you, you can take this um when, when you're when you're characterizing the goodness of the model in terms of its ability to minimize its expected free energy, you tend to get these two terms that fall out of the equation, these two kind of classes of value that you're optimized for. One would be this intrinsic value of realizing your prior preferences for um, system world configurations that will tend to be of a um, evolutionarily sensible variety that allow beings like you to exist. But then there's also the intrinsic value of information. And you're looking for sources of like, you're looking for ways of like getting uh, opportunities for refining your models. And I think these map pretty well also onto stability and plasticity. And so you're seeing this showing up again and again. And so I mentioned like, if you get it like the collective level, you'll get some interesting like combinations of things which seem more psychological and not quite psychological of like an individual sense. And that you could think of like a more conscientious society or a more agreeable society. Um, sure. And, and this could be partially a function of the people that's in it, or it could interestingly be a kind of trade-off where a more like uh, rigid society could potentially afford more latitude lower down or not. Like it's yeah. So there might not be a strong correlation between the the traits of the society as a whole and its constituent elements as an aggregate. That'd be kind of that'd be kind of interesting. Yeah, and, and the conditions yeah. under which you'd expect them to like go together or like be complementary and divergent. I think that's mm. like she she gets into that um, a good amount, and that's a really fascinating piece of work. But to come to stability and plasticity, this uh, balance between the dynamic tension, uh, uh, navigating that dynamic, maintaining being the right point of the tension, I tend to um, think of this in terms of a construct of uh, self-organized criticality. And that um, basically, or, or the edge of chaos, and that if you basically, uh, so self-organized criticality with the idea being that um, complex adaptive systems, there seems to be across many of them, or, or maybe any of them that persist in order to persist, they need to have this balance of stability and plasticity of order and chaos. Um, or not chaos, that, that'd be technically wrong, but of order and disorder. And the way I tend, to, there's a couple different ways. And so the idea of self-organized criticality is the system will self-organize to get at this 
to find this like regime at the edge of chaos where um, you're not in this point of instability, but you're close enough to it that the way I interpret it is, I guess, in two ways. If you're like um, in this sort of like close to this phase transition across different regimes, different ways of being, well, that gives you options. That gives you the adaptive capacity of having, I can go in this part of the state space or this one or this one. And so having this attractor, having your self-organization move you to this edge of disorder, that's actually a good thing to be at an inter-regime that gives you options. Mm -hmm. But then the other way I, I might think of it is um, in terms of like the dynamic tension, the balance, um, in terms of generalized evolution, you want enough plasticity and variability to have different things being tried out, being explored. You want the variation, but then you want enough stability that you can get structure building upon structure. Like it, an adaptation wouldn't be any good if it just disappeared as soon as it was created. So you need enough stability to have cumulative adaptation or evolution and enough plasticity to have the variation to work from for replication, variation, selection, the formula for natural selection. And that's the only way that really any system, as far as I can tell, uh, temporarily uh, escapes the maximal pro maximally probable outcome of just getting dissipating. Like the only way that the second law is circumvented for any length of time seems to be via generalized evolution um to a free energy person would frame in terms of learning and inference but um that that's another connection between them that i see is that this it, it, it's fundamental for any complex adaptive system yeah this really makes me um think about and concerned for our um governments and our societies because you know the governments are Kind of our government's responsible uh, for maintaining social order and taking in information, integrating it, and making decisions based upon what's going on in the world. And they seem to be getting worse at it, or I would perhaps not worse. There's just so much more going on. Like the, there's a fire hose of of novelty and new information um, that is actually really quite important, and they can't really uh, adapt um, as quickly as is necessary. And there are, there are uh, powers that be, or uh, there are there are things out there that are stopping that that have a great to be great deal of influence that stop or hinder the changes that might actually be that that might, that we might need to make, um, and that's not good. Like we need to, you know, if we don't adapt, if, if we're too rigid, we die, right? Um, and that's not good. <laughs> That's not good for you know the long term future, like the, the potential beings that could be in the future, the people that are alive now. Like it's uh, really important that we kind of um, upgrade our institutions. Um, and there's like science that's kind of this is like the science it's pointing at it, right? This is why I'm quite excited about this new age that we're in. I think we're seeing like the coming together of I guess values, um, like the ways the ways things should be and. Yeah, I think the way the world is is can really inform us about the way the way the world should be. Like when we're talking about how we should set up our systems, well, it's like, well, at the end of the day, we got to survive, and like the government is directing resources, it's undergoing computations, blah 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 blah, um, to allocate these resources. So we kind of need to know about the nature of these, of, of how this actually works, so that we can do this better, so that 
the number of people that are alive can actually live better lives or that, you know, all sentient beings can like whatever value structure we want to chuck in there. It helps to know how systems operate and how they can operate optimally. Um, and then take that information and integrate it into our um, political models because, well, hey, you know, that's that's how these things work. So I think we're at a really interesting time now. And I like if I was I, I, I want our governments, I want governments to like just be getting complex system scientists and everyone like I, I think complexity science should be taught in you know school, like stuff, physics, chemistry and biology. One of them should just be complexity science um, because it's just like the it's like a whole new way of doing things. Um, it just gets me very excited. Um, and I, I just That's think it's so critical, right? It's so yes, critical it. in this moment. I guess the problem is like the newness of it and the way that some of our intuitions are shaped by basically we're constantly trying to like curtail complexity. We're creating like these, um, like highly designed environments and situations for ourselves that like will, will sometimes be like, where there's very clear uh, means ends relationships and we're trying to get like a, a really precise causal sequence that we can do to get particular plans. We want to like, we want to leverage complexity, but like for us in achieving a particular goal, we're oftentimes trying to like constrain that. And so I think people's intuitions are oftentimes like of a complexity minimization rather than a leveraging variety. And so then like what sort of governments will, and what sort of relationship will we have between governments and peoples? Well, the governments were going to have to like play to these sensibilities or, or um, it might all just be about like, so the government, what do you want? You want governance? You want to create a certain type of order. But mm. um, this though, you know, so, so then you, you'd have. Um, so, I, I see it as like not constrained. It's, const it's not constraining complexity. I think what we want to do is maximize complexity but in such a way that it is not surprising, right? It's the surprising factor. So we can have, like, we, I'm incredibly complex. You're incredibly complex. Like, our society is incredibly complex, but it's only, uh, things are only fine. Like, things are fine when nothing surprising happens, when there are no anomalies that could, you know, um, result in some, sort, some form of disaster. So we don't want to minimize complexity. We want to maximize it, but just minimize the chances of something bad going wrong. And that, that's, well, you know, how I see order. And that's what we really want is what you're yeah. describing. But I think people want this without knowing that that's what they want. And so yeah. then the governments that come in seem to not be what you're describing partially. Yeah. And I mean, you can, kind of, you can definitely see how they're voted in there. You know, like people don't want to, like, it's not very, it's kind of scary thinking that like, oh, wow, this, like the world's a lot crazier than you guys thought. And, um, we're going to do our best. So there's the person there with humility being like, look, guys, speaking to the country, you know, shit's tough and we don't know what's going on, but we're going to do our best versus the guys like, I know exactly what we need to do. Blah, 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 blah. Vote for me. These people are evil. And, you know, like we're, we're pretty simple creatures in that, in that respect. And that I think we, we, we kind of gravitate towards people or entities that provide us with that level of with, with a sense of certainty because like you know at, what i one of my biggest takeaways from the past few years is that uncertainty is like the biggest evil right like it's 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 uncertainty that is what causes the terror it's what causes the the feeling of consternation um, and the biggest opportunity and the biggest opportunity and the biggest opportunity yeah yeah
And there's a lot of uncertainty today. Yeah. And so anyone though who like can potentially artificially like go forward with less help people reduce their uncertainty, giving giving an overly simple framing. Anyone who has like, you know, a clear, tight message or and potentially really problematically so, um, those ideas will tend to uh propagate quickest because they're easiest to grok. Um mm-hmm. They might correspond. It might give people the feeling of uncertainty uh, reduction when really it's it's uh, it's just sort of like closing your eyes to things. Yeah. And then also like if these people with the overly simple frames are forming coalitions, they might form coalitions more quickly. And then there you have it. Yeah, I think I kind of covered this with Max, uh, like Maxwell Ramstead, um, in our conversation. We're just talking about like societies needing shared generative models to be able to coexist and that's one of the problems that we're that we may encounter over the next decade or which we are already seeing you know different countries having shared models of uh, like models that are not completely commensurate with one another and therefore there could be some clash um and you know very likely will be yeah 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 it is um it's a it's funny, like 2020 came around. It's like first month, second month of 2020, new decade. And it's like, already the, the you know, the, the teens were, the teens were just a little warm up guys. Like this is what the, this is what the next decade is going to be like. Here's the coronavirus. Here's, you know, I, I'm sure there are other things that I'm not mentioning, but it was just like a big, you know, um, wake up call. I remember that you, in that conversation, um, like you were putting forward like a potential candidate uh over narrative or myth shared myth if you will um some sort of um based on life and the preconditions for life like like could through these complexity frameworks like through a kind of um complexity science a deep ecological perspective what are the preconditions for there to be life well we all want to be alive um or most of us and those who don't tend not to be for very long and so could this be the point of coordination? Could this be the shared generative model that we enact together? Like we kind of go back, go back to these fundamentals of what does, what do we need to do to live? Yeah. And yeah. A hundred percent. And it extends beyond like our species, right? Like, cause we are dependent upon the biosphere. Like we are embedded within this biophysical system that, um, you know, it gives rise to us. Like our societies are not separate to, I got into some silly argument on Twitter with this guy who's, it's not even worth talking about, but you it's know, never just happened like to me before. super pro fossil fuel, you know, like we need fossil fuels to promote human flourishing. And I'm like, okay, but like what's human flourishing dependent on, you know, like, you know, is it, I know, I'm, I'm not going to go into this, but like the, the general, I, I think what can be a unifying like values, like a general set of, um, values for our species, you know, it, it has to be rooted in life, right? Because we are dependent upon the natural systems that provide us with, like, they do so much work, like economic, like we, we can't put an economic value on it because, you know, how do you put a, a value on oxygen or like the things that are just critical for the survival of um, every, like, you know, all mammals and other things, right? It's it just, it's just, it's a dumb thing to even ask. Um, but unfortunately, you know, we're not making the, we're not taking the actions that we really should be taking because we aren't costing these, um, we aren't taking these things, uh, these costs into account uh, appropriately. Um, and at the end of the day, it's like, we want to survive and, uh, we are all bound. We are all stuck on this little rock together and things aren't going too well. I mean, 
what I actually think is um, what complexity science and th- these new ways of exploring the world uh, provide us with is an actual metric for measuring, like a, I would call it like a, a, a material correlate for ethical value. So like, you know, complexity or low entropy, right? So our intuition tells us that complex systems seem to be more um, valuable. Like human beings, we are very, very complex. And our intuition says, well, like we should promote, like human beings are good. We should, um, you know, try to ensure that human beings survive. And yes, our, yeah, but we are like anthropocentric. Our intuitions have evolved over the course of a long period of time. And it was, it's, it was adapted for us to be anthropocentric or for our intuitions to be anthropocentric. So perhaps we overvalue human life more than we should or whatever, but. It was very adapted before the Anthropocene. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, But so. When you just just say that I. Never ending bonanza. And like, oh, oh, look, another mammoth. Oh, look, another mammoth. Awesome. (laughs) Then you're out of mammoths. Out of mammoths. And then we had agriculture. We got all crooked teeth. Um, Yeah. But yeah, we have this this underlying intuition that's. like, you could say it's not perfectly calibrated, but it's if, if if it's not perfectly calibrated, then we could say what it's calibrated to. And it looks like it's calibrated to minimizing entropy, like preserving preserving um, order. Like if we want to just, it's easier to talk about this in terms of order, preserving order and um, generating new order, right? And that's preserving order in the in the social sense, in the bio the biological sense, and also in like the you know the biophysical sense. And we could kind of abstract it. No, we could take that. We could take this notion and abstract it to all these sorts of things because um, our order is dependent upon all these other systems, right? Like it's, they're, they're inextricably connected. And then I reckon like this could be like a, like, so it, it's preservation and generation of that, but these things are probabilistic, right? And you know, obviously your, your frame counts. Like there's a beetle in cat, like there's a beetle that's kind of ravaging Canadian forests or something. So it doing its thing is really good for its species, but from the objective like perspective outside, if it's destroying forests, it's not a very good thing because the net result is a reduction is an increase in entropy, you know, destruction of complexity. Um, and I, I reckon that this can kind of really fit into a, um, I think this could be like a way that we can kind of measure, even if it just really approximately, um, good actions and bad actions, you know, like what should we be doing? Okay. Well, the Amazonian rainforest is being destroyed and it, I don't know how we'd measure the like entropy or complexity of something like this. I don't know if we actually have really, I'm no expert in complexity science or thermodynamics or anything. So I don't know how we'd measure these things, but even if we were to just do it from like a, a, a very, 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 um, you know, back of the napkin type thing. Um, I reckon we could, it could give us some, uh, some indication of what we should be doing with with regards to certain things. Um, anyway, that was just a, a big, big ramble. Um, it's there actually could be some measures, also, and some of them related to criticality, which could be used as generalized measures of the health of any cybernetic system. And so, like, um, there's some uh, wrinkles there, and so, like, for instance, some. Um, like, how do you know if a system is, is actually at this, like, edge of chaos regime or like, is exhibiting self-organized criticality? There's a couple um, way, things you can look for. Um, uh, some, so sometimes people talk about power law distributions or seeing, like, 
across scales, although that's contested because you can get power laws from non-critical systems. Or um, people might look for things like critical slowing down, like when you make a perturbation to the system, does it like have a certain, um, uh, is the response, um, uh, does it seem to like resist perturbation um, or have some interesting response to it? Uh, you can look at things like fractal dimension. There's different like uh, ways of characterizing uh, critical systems. But one thing that could be somewhat uh, thorny is that interestingly, um, very complex adaptive systems, they're not necessarily critically organized in every single part of them. You might have some systems which have more stability, some which have more flexibility. And if you're looking at different measure metrics within an overall like um, organism or ecosystem, you might only want like some processes. You might some you might want some to be like ultra stable, like we're not ultra stable. You might want some to be very stable, and you might want some to be very flexible, and that you can get the synergy across them. And so you would need to have that kind of um, to know which complexity measures to apply. You would actually need probably a good causal model of what each of the subcomponents of the system are doing and where they should be with respect to like different amounts of stability and plasticity and what types of dynamics they ought to exhibit. Mm. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I'm just thinking about it in the context of our civilization, like you want energy, your, your source of energy to be very stable, right? You don't want too much experimentation to be going around with the energy grid because energy is central to, you know, our lives and for us living our technologically advanced lives, but you might want lots of um, plasticity around um, or experimentation around the generation of new science. Um, but I don't know yeah. how you would model those as like bounded systems that kind of interact. I, I don't either. Um, the, mm. I lose it. Mm. Ah, um, although some of these measures might be, I don't know some of these measures, but so for instance, like, so some of these principles could apply in a kind of global way, even though you might look for different stability plasticity balances to be there at different points. There still is a sense in which I think you probably should expect the overall complex adaptive system to be critically organized, even if there are subcomponents which aren't. And so like, um, hmm. And so you might get, and you might get some reads that are just surprisingly powerful and useful. Like for instance, like heart rate variability, that's like a complexity measure for uh, us, which um, actually, you know, so you don't just want to completely steady heart. You want it to be adjusting continuously with like on the inhale and the exhale to get you in this right balance. You want to be adjusting, not just to the inhale and the exhale, but to what you're anticipating. So like, as you're anticipating, I'm about to go into um, a mode where I better like get up and get it. Now you're adjusting it, or now things are fine. Well, then you bring it down. And so this, you can actually quantify this one thing, like how variable are your cardiac dynamics. And, but this ends up giving you a really good read on overall health, overall well-being, just this, applying this complexity measure to this. In a way, it's analogous to actually kind of, uh, or this one source of energy in life. Mm. So... Like and, and even like um, it could even be the case like for like even like an electrical system, you need like you, you don't you want it to be ultra stability. You want it to be meta stability in order to work in order to be to adapt to changes. It's like you know, things go down here, 
you want some of this capacity. So it, you want the stability, but it might be of a, a metastable or ultra-stable variety that already has within it. And so these complexity measures might work even there. It's like complexity and variability, it, it, that's the real stability. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that, it's, that's, it's ironic. You know, like to be stable across time, you need to not be stable. You need to adapt. It's like, the, and it's the process, right? It's, it comes down to there is this process that we need to adhere to. Um, that it's like the meta process that enables us to survive. And it's, you know, maybe we've just been refining it, but it's been there since day one and it's worn different clothes across time. But, it, you know, it, I think it's going to be true from our level of complexity all the way up to when we become space spacefaring species and maybe you know, you know capable of you know using physics that we haven't even discovered like this will be still the case that we need to walk this tightrope between um uh the unknown and the known the uh the like chaos and order or that you know as you said chaos isn't actually the right way to order and disorder order and disorder yeah we need to work we need to walk that tightrope to maximize potential but but yeah that's what that's basically what it's it like maximize potential adaption without uh that resulting in chaos or a disorder destruction death all that and uh, i guess the question would be like how do you know not the question but a question an important question would be like how do you know that the balance is right and so like um if you're uh, it'll vary. Like if you're, so like if you're an organism, there's a sense actually in which like your heart rate variability, for instance, you actually have this read on are you in a zone of um, the proximal development or at the at the edge of the adjacent possible? Are you at the right place where it's neither too much nor too little? Like, are, mm. you know, it, so sometimes you do want like you know you want that the the heart to reduce its complexity because you're just going to go into like a do and die mode. But then like, if it's always that way, well, yeah. you know, you're not at that point. And so it it's would like be good enough is good enough, right? It's, it's that thing. Good enough is good enough. Cause there's diminishing marginal utility depend like, you know, you could be, it, it could be perfectly attuned to your needs moment to moment, but the marginal, like the utility you derive from that and like the amount of energy you have to expend processing and adapting at all times isn't worth it. You just, it just needs to be good enough to do the job well enough. Good enough and, and, you know, as good as you can, but if you, it, uh, it's, given it, resource constraints, yeah, given resource constraints and, um, and within the range of what you're seeking, actually, uh, not going beyond what you're capable of actually pursuing. And so it, it seems like you need, um, a metacognitive process. So like there's some things which would give you a kind of minimal metacognition of, are you balancing? Are you in basically the, the the zone where you ought to be um, as a complex adaptive system? And there might be some just like heuristic or or reads the kind of implicit metacognition. So it's like I feel bad, I feel good. That's like a I feel, um, but like I have this handled or not. But then you you would want on top of that other metacognitive varieties of well, what is happening and what am I doing? You actually want different kinds of consciousness to actually be able to model yourself explicitly and am I on a trajectory? And so that would be an, a, another thing you, that 
you know, consciousness was a major advent in evolution. That was, that was, mm. you know, not just using feedback loops with these indicators, but actually predicting trajectories for the system within a world that you're able to model and then using this to chart your way. Not just like a, a, a not just like, not, I guess there's a sense which is it's always a gradient ascent on feeling good or gradient descent on trying not to feel bad. But doing that not just with respect to like the immediate engagement with the world, but with respect to what you're imagining might happen next. And that seems like uh, something that can be difficult to happen. Uh, it's difficult for individuals and it's potentially even more difficult for collectives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we can apprehend, we are conscious, so we kind of have like a bit of an idea about what's going on here. But I don't think our, like, you know, the USA isn't awake and aware as, a, as an entity. Um, at least I, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think this is a good way to, I kind of took us on a big, I derailed us a bit. I kind of wanted to get to some of this stuff a bit later on. Um, but, so I want to really talk about uh, consciousness and, um, mm integrated world modeling you know, like the integrated world integrated integrated I, world I, I, modeling theory that's the one that's the one. iwmt so, for short iwmt all right so i guess a good place to begin might be just to hear your take on what do you think consciousness actually is um like how do we think of consciousness generally um and whether or not those characterizations are correct or whether or not they could be better characterized or chopped up into little pieces, I don't know. Um, and then we can talk about IWMT. Sure. Yeah. Um, awesome. So I guess, you know, consciousness, it's a word, and Minsky would say it's a suitcase word. It's a word that's been pushed too far and given so many meanings as to almost be meaningless. I don't think that's quite true. I think we're, we're okay with the way we use language. It's not perfect, but it's uh, nothing is. And... Um, but I do like the idea of factorizing consciousness a bit into the different senses of what we might mean. And so, um, I like onion images. And so I kind of think of consciousness like an onion with like different layers of complexity being built up. I can think of it like, uh, or growing out of it. Um, uh, or like a tree that's growing up of an onion, let's say. And so like, you might have like this core of just an intelligent modeling system. And then at some point around this ability to be intelligent and model and perceive and act, the ability to have a modeling where you might then say that there is something that it is like to be that modeling process. We might say that there is subjectivity, a point of view, or, and I think you would, people would call this a phenomenal consciousness. Um, the, the emergence of a first person ontology from what otherwise you would describe from a third person perspective as a system but now this is a system where there's something from the inside that it's like um some people would say that's and so where you put that um in like this of this process of evolution and emergence there's debate and i have a i have a take on that but then like in the ways we use the word consciousness you then could add more complexity so now um you could talk about conscious access so the ability to be aware of your experience, to manipulate your experiences in mind and, and report on them and tell them to others. And so, so, so knowledge of experience. 
that that's potentially a different use of the word consciousness and, and a meaningful one. And then you might have with that, you know, maybe a little bit out or like maybe a little bit in like self-consciousness and self-consciousness of different forms where not, uh, what you're aware of is yourself as a, as a being in the world in a particular type of way, um, with a certain temporal and spatial extent. You might get all the way to the level of, you know, an autobiographical selfhood that you're telling a story about yourself through time. And this is a mode of consciousness. And people sometimes use the word in that way, like your consciousness of yourself as a being. And so with um, integrated world modeling theory, I was focusing on phenomenal consciousness. I was focusing on what are the preconditions for there to be something that it is like to be a system. And so what I um, did was I basically cross-referenced as many of the different theories as I could that would address phenomenal consciousness um, and, and address the, the brain, the, the trains, the processes by which um, brain or, or um, any complex system might um, claim give rise to consciousness and then cross-reference them. Uh, I focus mostly on integrated information theory and global neural workspace theory and look for the points of overlap and difference. But uh, and within, I put all this kind of within the, the um, overarching perspective of the free energy principle and active inference as at least this overarching framework for basically um, allowing for synthesis and adjudication among competing claims of different theories. So with integrated world modeling theory, the claim is that conscious, phenomenal consciousness is what it is like to be an generative modeling process where you are generating um, a model of your uh, where you're generating likely experiences given a model of the world. And I, I argue that there are certain types of um, coherence properties that you would need for there to be anything that could appear whatsoever. And so I took a page from uh, Kant. And so he argued for any kind of coherent judgment whatsoever, you needed these um, synthetic a priori categories or these complex um, synthetic, but before experience intuitions that lets you structure further experience and, and lets you make sense of things. They're preconditions for judgment. And so then the idea is, well, these might, so then I was wondering, are these preconditions for any world to appear whatsoever to any being? So coherence, things with respect to, coherence with respect to space, time, and cause. And so space I'm understanding is like locality or some things are closer together and further apart than others. Time is in things move about in this space in different proportional ways. So some things are moving more quickly, more slowly, and we will sometimes peg this and you know we'll, we'll create timelines. But this way of describing the way things move in space, time, um, with relative proportion, and causation in terms of there's regularities that you can track. And the idea is that unless you have coherence with respect to the ability to place things relative to things and account for their changes and the regularities in those changes, you're not going to get a world in the, there won't be a world for there to be a world to appear. I want things relative to things with particular properties. Otherwise I'm not sure what kind of world it is. I'm not sure what it would mean to say like what it is like to be a system from the inside. I, you say like what it feels like. The idea would be basically, I think when we talk about consciousness, at least for ourselves, we're saying, this world of experience, our experienced world, this bringing forth of a world that we experience from a subjective point of view. 
And so the idea is that you need these properties. Um, and so then I'll look at, I looked at the neural systems that might help to give rise to these, um, that, that might uh, afford these capacities for these different kinds of coherence. And so um, what ended up being, so, and, and then thinking, are these the physical and, and computational substrates of consciousness? And so uh, one among parts of the brain that or neural systems that could be useful and which I believe um, are the ones that give rise to our phenomenal experience, it would be particularly the back of the brain, the posterior part, as these hierarchies of patterns off of your different modalities. So off the back of your head, it would be this hierarchy of vision, which then would split into different things, of, you know, would split into you your what stream as it goes down low and your where stream as it goes up. Um, really, it's more of like a how affordance stream, but the point is you'll have like from your sound, you have a hierarchy there, and where these hierarchies all come together and can exchange information, and now you have access, or now all these different forms of information can be brought together with synergy, well, that's going to be helpful. But then let's, for creating, like, for figuring out what's in the world. But the other part that would be essential is for any of these modalities, you need the reference frame. You need to actually say, from what's being experience from whether what's being sensed what is the relationship of this sensing being with relation to the world that's that's you need this as part of accounting for what the sensations are like as you um for instance like um right now most of the motion on your sensors is actually generated from your own action from your own motion as you your eyes move around but it's also to account for what you're seeing you have to know what's my pose relative to the world and so um, you're going to want to have neural systems that have access to where was my head pointed? And, and so it turns out that some of these um, structures that when you actually uh, disrupt them, they uh, will uh, cause altered states of consciousness and um, potentially even loss of consciousness. Um, they have access to all this information. Um, you'll have access to all the different modalities. Where's, where's my body pose? But also, um, so there's, there's a structure called the posterior cingulate, which couples closely with, um, this other structure called the precuneus in the, in the back of the brain. And this, this precuneus, um, it's associated with actually mental imagery. It's related, um, we're talking about aphantasia earlier. And so the vividness of your mental Im imagery tends to correlate there. And then if you lesion that area, um, you will lose those abilities and you can get um, you don't all you don't usually get like tight lesions there because like it's tucked in like right in the midline, but you will lose different forms of consciousness. Um, but this structure that's talking closely to the posterior cingulate, it's um it receives uh, stretch receptor information from the neck. It receives information from the vestibular apparatus, so it knows like the yaw, pitch, and roll of your head. And so now it has all of your modalities organized by your pose. Now I think you have what you need to construct a model of your sensory engagement and produce an experience world from a point of view. Uh, there's further things from like, um, it seems like for this modeling process, you might need a system of a sufficient size that um, you can have um, that, that, that basically the subsystems, which are creating 
an overall model of the organism and its relationships of the world that, th that these models can uh, evolve and update without constantly being um, disturbed by the immediate engagement with the senses. So you might need something of a, of, a, of a big enough size that it's not just this continuous flow of information and messages, but that you're actually generating estimates of what's going on. And so in um, global neural workspace theory, they'll talk about these ignition events, or Dennett calls it fame in the brain, where you're basically selecting a winning interpretation of what's going on when you get enough activity building up that you get this kind of explosive percolation, get these big synchronous complexes forming, and that somehow, the, and so there's an interpretation of this as a Bayesian model selection or a selection, an iterative selection of what's going on. And so for your phenomenal consciousness, for us, I would argue that it's likely generated at alpha frequencies about eight to 12 times a second. And this would be the, it would use this belief hierarchy over your senses and fill this and, and, and generate likely sense data given everything you've experienced. And that for me, this iterative estimates of where you are chained in time, that's the stream of consciousness, eight to 12 times a second, the inversion of a generative model over your sensorium, given a history of experience where the whole thing is entailing a model of the world with, that's capable of keeping track of things coherently with respect to space, time, and cause. That's like the nutshell of, I think you need that. Or you don't need, you don't need that, but you need like, I think that's how we do it. And I think you need a system that can do something analogous to that for there yeah. to be a world that appears to it. Yeah. Okay. So we need to, I'm just going to see if I, how well I understand this. So we need to, we've, and this is hard, <laughs> but you did a good job of explaining it. It's just, there's like so many moving parts and things that kind of fit in. Right. But I, I just, that fame in the brain thing. So I just, I might just start from there. We have like these competing probabilistic notions of what's going on in the world and the sense data contributes to how strong those probabilities are. And the ones that really scream out our conscious awareness selects is like, that's the, uh, the most accurate, or that's our best guess as to what's going on, uh, in sense the world. Data right? plus priors. Sense data plus priors. So plus your, got, plus like, your expectations, the intersection yeah, so we, of the two. Yeah. Okay. So we've got all these like little bets, like our brains generating, like all these little, um, uh, like counterfactuals for a better term, like what could be explaining what's going on. And then the one that has the most data we select, and then that becomes our new prior. Okay. That's uh, yeah. Almost like a prediction market of sorts. Like with like yeah, winner take yeah, all yeah. dynamics and it's always wrong, but because you just generate it because it's, you're always generating a new one, like eight to 12 times a second. It's good enough that you can get by, and so the uh, and so the purpose of it would have a couple purposes. Um, would but it would be basically, um, it would allow you to both basically to, to more skillfully navigate action perception cycles. So you would want it uh, to you would want this these updates these estimates to form quickly enough that they're capable of being informed by your ongoing engagement with the world that, that can be informed by perception. And that they can inform things and shape action. And so there has to be a certain, in terms of like closing these functional cycles of acting and perceiving, you have to generate these estimates quickly enough. The system has to be capable of doing this so that you actually can make sense of things. That is actually capable of 
being meaningfully updating and then updating. If it's, if it's if the relations, um, if the temporal relations are off, like, let's say it's like a very slow extended process. It's like, you know, is a forest conscious? Maybe not because your the, the, the action perception cycles won't be tight enough. Too many things will enter the mix by the time you get these, like by the time, whatever information is cascading through it, it wouldn't be enough to meaningfully be informed by because too many things would be happening or bring form to the engagement with the world. And so there has to be a certain alignment and, and well, uh, uh, for the rate at which different attractors are formed within and without. And so I think that places a limit. And so uh, I, I don't think forests are conscious. I don't think um, entire nations are conscious. I think embodied organisms with, with fast neurons, with small world network architectures where everything could talk to everything else pretty quickly with a few steps, that could do it. You might be able to and do it another That needs to be integrated, right? It needs to be in, like though that talking needs to be integrated into some model or I don't know if, what the right terminology here would yeah. be, but of what's going on moment to moment. They have to be integrated quickly enough. Yeah. And so, um, and that's actually part of like with integrated information theory. Um, so I'm, uh, I was taking these, um, uh, so the, they're, they're, they're starting from the basics of what they think any conscious experience is like. Uh, and then they're saying based on these, these axioms of what characterizes all experience, what are the mechanisms that could realize it? And they create this way of handling certain types of complex systems that feed back on themselves. Um, and they characterize this, the irreducible self cause effect power of systems and, um, as their integrated information. And, um, and then they say, the degree to which you have this is the degree to which you have consciousness. Uh, I don't think that's the case. I, I think it's rather the degree to which you have this is the degree to which you can engage in kinds of complex property processing that could give rise to consciousness, but we got to ground it. We have to give it a body. And so the idea is like taking the, the, the workspace dynamics described by things like um, DeHane and Global Neural Workspace Theory, these ignition events, these synchronous complexes, and then treating those as complexes of integrated information. And then you look for the biggest one, and it just so happens to be the one that would correspond to this joint um, estimate over your entire sensorium in the back of the brain. That's where it will tend to be. With the front of the brain tending to do this more like forward-looking modeling, but it doesn't appear to be the, 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 the but it doesn't appear to be the thing that's generating the stream of experience itself. That seems to be always in the back. <clears throat> yeah. So if we were to try to like say one thing was more conscious than another, like what sort of variables would we like look at measuring, or would it be like you know the 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 gigabytes, you know, the number of gigabytes that are running from moment to moment in this integrated model, or like, I think there might be multiple things that kind of feed into here. It'd be like the, the updating cycle, like the number of times per second this is happening, the amount of data that's in there. Um, if, I don't really know. Um, how would we even begin to measure this if, if we could? So it's, um, it's interesting actually, like, um, Global neural workspace theory doesn't have like an objective way of addressing that question, I wouldn't say. But integrated information theory does, um, in terms of the different estimates of the amount of irreducible complexity. And so to actually do the calculations for any system of any appreciable size as 
described by the theory to do the 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 the, the proper calculations that's just a non-starter you can really only do it like analytically for a system i think of last i checked it was um uh uh 11 or 12 complex nodes or like eight or nine like or, or eight or nine complex nodes or like 12 like logic gates with like on or off and then after that it just explodes and the calculations wouldn't happen um you know it would take you're running into like you know age of the universe stuff but there's estimates and so one of them is this um uh, uh zap and zip method or the perturbational complexity index where what they'll do is they'll um for instance for a person that you want to know if they're like let's say locked like in a locked in state or it's like a deep coma without consciousness or let's say you're dealing with someone who's either like dreaming or like in deep sleep without dreams um put electric cap on their head you take a transcranial magnetic stimulator you pulse their brain with activity and then you look at the complexity of the of the waveform you look at and the you specifically look at um how big is the zip file like if you actually try to zip the data set and the um more irreducible the, the the harder that is the bigger the zip file of the evoked thing that that's one read on it and this is actually fairly powerful for um estimating uh differences between let's say uh dreaming and dreamless sleep um it's it's it, so it's, if you're dreaming similar. are you the zip file is larger than if it was if you weren't dreaming yeah so and so if you sleep you get like these big pulses and everything's sort of um are these big swaps big slow synchronous complexes and then um so i I, so I didn't get this word complex like in this uh, like what what is a yeah what, what is a complex here um an ensemble of coordinating elements of varying degrees of softness and firmness that are coupling and coordinated enough fashion that you you say that they are some kind of unit and so a, a complex yeah. um, okay so if like you've got a mexican wave in a stadium and that people kind of waving in some like it doesn't need to be going around but they've got a big group of people kind of waving their arms in certain synchrony it's not perfect would you call that a complex you could use the term differently so you could either um say like the traveling wave is itself yeah. like as you you're, that's like a, a moving complex but let's say like it loops back around and creates mm -hmm. like a clear harmonic pattern where like you can say like it creates like shapes like standing waves mm -hmm. those could be complexes too okay. um but the um and, and so I, I think you can get at i don't know though if i would say that's necessarily i think it's likely to be but it's not necessarily i think you can use that to say um what is the uh vividness of someone's conscious experience like what's the the level of intensity of it but if you're talking about um consciousness in the sense of knowledge and having like uh like a conscious system that has like a good model that'll be harder and i don't know if there's like a, a clear complexity measure like i'm actually like beginning so I'm, I'm starting to move in the direction of um trying to go from okay phenomenal consciousness all right but now what do we mean by what are the means of access consciousness like what is accessed how is it accessed um what is self-consciousness what is metacognition that actually in some ways i think is a lot harder than the hard problem 
I actually think the hard problem is kind of a statement that will get me in trouble, I'm sure. But I, I think part of what made it so hard was we were impatient about waiting for the right bridging principles that you could have something that would seem plausible to you, like something like probabilistic modeling as a framework. And academics and scholars, they just didn't talk about the body. They, they, if you talk about consciousness in the abstract, outside of any given sensory experience, why should anyone, it should just seem like this complete impenetrable mystery. If you just, if you lost track of the fact of the core of experience itself, what it feels like. If you lot, if you, if you don't talk about the feel, if you made, if you made that taboo is not serious, not being, you know, academic or intellectual enough, then we got that. And then if you add on top of it, well, we don't even, have like a, a bridging principle across levels of analysis. But, but I think we're actually at a place now um, where we can say, yeah, I mean, it's going to depend on the, like your sensibilities, I think. But I, I think the hard problem is close to being solved. I think the real challenge, what's much harder, is going to be these other forms of consciousness. That's going to be, that's, that's, that's the real, uh, that's the real, real difficulty. Mm -hmm. Love to see like a taxonomy of consciousnesses, you know, just like a, a picture of all the little types and how they fit together. I think, like, like an example of like self consciousness and metacognition. So, um, something I'm wondering about is as, as a way of modeling it. So, okay, you, um, so from from my the models I'm working with, consciousness is always from a first person point of view. It's always a view from somewhere. It's always, there's a reference frame from some observer. But when you imagine yourself and model yourself and become conscious of yourself and, and use this for complex forms of metacognition, what was I doing? Where was I? Who am I in this respect that? You have to somehow objectify the self. You, you, you create like a third person representation. And so part of what I'm wondering is, for instance, um, how is this generated in what system? So for instance, let's say you start imagining yourself um, enacting some sort of sequence. Like you, you imagine yourself doing something like I'm going to go make tea and you're picturing yourself making tea. But um, when this happens associatively, there will be linkages to things you've seen of um, other people doing these sorts of things. We're constantly like we actually kind of come from a very early age, we mirror with other people. We're doing this mapping from others to ourselves. And so in theory, you can create this sort of like, uh, depending on like degree of like how, where you are on a Fantasia spectrum, you can, you, you, you can access these objectified representations of agents doing similar things. And then as you're simulating different yourself in different situations, you then have something that's, um, you then now have act so that you can then potentially bring online via these associative linkages images of agents doing similar things and this counterfactual you you can then make it do different things by enacting different things in uh, different mental acts or you could like do things like uh fictively like foveating across you can like inspect the thing and like take different points of view on the objectified representation of you and so then there might be this like back and forth between like different neural systems being more or less dominant as you're like moving back and forth between like 
taking either the, the, the point of view from within or from without. And this seems like the kind of thing we're going to need for like metacognition and self-consciousness. It'll be, I think it's going to be this sort of kind of crazy bootstrapping story of uh, crazy. It's, it's <laughs> you don't have your crazy, but it, it's, it's going to be something of, of that nature. And that it's like, when we're talking about something like, um, like model selection over your sensorium given experience, there might be more like kind of well-defined processes that you could like meaningfully describe in terms of neural systems. But here it's like when you're getting to things like self-consciousness, you can talk about the relevant neural systems, and, but the actual like to diagram it out in terms of the entities and their interrelations, it's like you can't point to anywhere in particular. It's this like really calm, like hairball unfolding of, of strange loops. Hmm. That seems, that seems a lot harder to me. I, I think the hard problem is cake compared to that. <laughs> <laughs> it's the first problem on the test. Yeah. Uh, first or second. Yeah. So I, I want to talk about free will in this context. Sure. Um, and that term has a lot of baggage. And, you know, you said to yourself you had an existential crisis when you were younger, and I've kind of had one as well. But I'm just like, well, it feels like I have it. I don't think I have it. I don't even know what I mean by myself. And, you know, the more I've, I've been learning, I'm like, we have all these individual, we, we might be constituted of more lower resolution personalities that are competing. Like, you know, the, this, um, these probabilistic models that you were talking about, the, the prediction markets, maybe they're like little personalities. Like what, what actually constitutes the self? And um, if I am, even if there was one unitary self, um, that self is still like somehow if that unitary self is somehow in here in my brain or in my body, how can that act in such a way that is divorced from the material in which it makes it up that kind of leads to action. And then we can call that, you know, some freedom of will. Like, so I know I've just dumped some nonsense there, but what's your take and how does it fit in with your understanding of consciousness in the brain and, and, all this fun stuff. Get the mate. Get the mate. Uh, he was just drinking some a caffeinated beverage to to prepare for this uh, this this journey. The triple shot's still going pretty strong. This is just uh, <laughs> some water. Oh, okay, but, okay. Um, the maybe a little too strong. Uh, the I, I think there's a similar issue with like suitcase words, right? And like, we're going to want to be more precise. Like, what do we want from free will? What are the varieties of free will that we want? And to what degree do we have each of them in which circumstances? And so, um, like, for instance, uh, Dennis, basically, he thinks like the most important one is agency. Can you have goals and can you pursue your goals? And, but, you know, other people, they want, um, you can, you can go to things like, you know, I want to be an uncaused cause. It's not clear anyone wants that, but the idea of um, spont having spontaneity, of having optionality, having your options open. Some people value unpredictability with respect to what's about to happen next. And these can be um, sometimes synergistic, sometimes at odds. So for instance, Dennett argued that um, uh, determinism is the friend of free will and that um, to the degree that we're not dealing with deterministic chaos and with sensitive initial conditions, but the degree to which um, the world has predictable structure that's better for planning. And so you can do, you can 
that'll be an easier situation for wanting what you do and doing what you want and adopting this agentic stance with respect to yourself. Um, but if you're, let's say, in a, uh, a, a rival context where there's other agents who you're like competing against or cooperating, paying cooperating with, there might be an advantage to having unpredictability about you in terms of your ability to not have your goals thwarted by others who would be competing with you. And so being somewhat illegible, even to yourself, could be an adaptive thing to like not even know what you're going to do. And so you might get some of that, for instance, through things like actually um, sensitivity to initial conditions, like um, uh, Juntani has, uh, like he, he tends to think of like the frontal lobes is giving you some of this free will just because of the nature of recurrent networks to be so nonlinear by the way they feed back on themselves. The idea is like through this, like these complex bifurcating dynamics that no one could predict in advance, this could be a source of spontaneity. Um, I've been tending to focus more on the, um, the micromechanics of goal-oriented behavior and, and agency and like achieving goals with feedback. And can you, um, based on the information you're having, uh, get what you want from the world and how do you do it? On, on the, uh, both on the, on the like, like very abstract terms, like what does it mean to pursue a goal, but also what are the algorithms you deploy and what are the neural systems? And so that, I, I would view that as basically, for me at least, the most important kind of free will, the ability to achieve particular goals in the world. And so um, in terms of causation, so, so then what people would, and what I was worried about is, well, there's not an, I, there's not a neuron in my head that knows or cares about me, and I have no idea what they're doing. I have no idea which ion channels are opening or closing. I have no idea about the individual particles, and they're just doing what they're doing. Like they are like the the charge. That's just a bang Coulomb's little. You know, that's just the, the electrochemical stuff. That's just Maxwell's equations. That's the kinetics. That that's its own thing. Um, and that's not me. I'm and so I, the resolution for me, at least. Um, also, in a way, came from Dennett, um, from his book Freedom Evolves, um, in terms of viewing, basically, uh, and later, uh, Sean Carroll wrote really, I think, beautifully on this in the big picture. But it's, um, so, so he, Dennett would viewed, um, eliminative material, eliminative materialism and determinism as negating free will as actually a category error. Where once you go to that level, so once I start talking about neurons, once I start talking about particles, well, why should I expect to be able to talk about these higher level patterns when they're not defined on that level? It's not within the scope of that ontology. And so then um, Sean Carroll will talk about like um, with, with romantic realism, where it's like everything is like, so you're having this sort of thing that is, and maybe you could just like hypothetically, there's like a, a set of like master equations that would describe like, what the god's eye view would be of like Laplace's demon who knows all things and sees them fall. But that's not our world. As soon as we start using language, we're coarse graining. And so actually we, we are uh, renormalizing. We're, we're, we're throwing away the internal detail and only paying attention to the higher level attractor structure and even the high, and, and we're only paying to the, paying attention to those. And so there's a sense in which, um, uh, determinism, uh, w wouldn't be, an enemy because 
um, the causation on that level would not influence the causation on the level which you would do if you took the agentic stance or elsewhere. It is like um, when you're doing causal analyses, there's you define the system in a certain way, and then once you define the level and you just, just define the ontology, define the kinds, and you're looking at the relations among them, you can't switch like mid-explanation. You have to pick. So if we're talking particles, that's causal for that system, if we're just talking particles. But then if we're now talking about a higher level set of causes and we're pore spraying over it, that's another causal count. And they don't, you don't switch. And so there's a sense in which, um, uh, uh, eliminative views on free will from determinism, they're actually, um, meaningless in a way and that they like, they violate the rules of certain language games and also our formal handlings of causation, they violate the assumptions. Like Perlian causation, where you set up a graphical model, you do interventions, you cut things, you move things, you see what changed the probability of what. You, you got to pick. What am I trying to explain? And so I, I think for all of it, um, uh, causation, part of the problem is I think we overly reify causation. So, you know, people like Bertrand Russell say, like, you know, what it? He says, it's like the monarchy, like it outlived its time. I don't think we should do that. I think causation is great as long as we understand what it is, which is a way of like predicting and explaining things. It's not like just floating out there in the ether, you know, handed down from like the philosopher king. It, it, it's a way of making sense. And so then once you do that, you're like, okay, wait, now the game of causal inference, the game of doing causal modeling, well, there's certain moves that are allowed and not allowed. And it seems that um, eliminative accounts of free will from determinism, that is not allowed in any of the causal games I know of. Um, th there might be some, but it's not, that's just not a, when we get precise about cause, uh, when, when we try to do it formally, that's just not a thing people do. Mm -hmm. I don't know and if that makes sense. Talk yeah, no, no, that, that, that made sense to me. Um, a part of me just thinks, like, we, we still got the problem of, like, who am I? Like in, in like you know like if we have these um I don't mean that in like the incredibly deeply philosophical sense like yeah it's it's more like am I do I have a unit is there a unitary self or am I like a collection of sub personalities or um like is there this one entity that is somehow causally affecting the actions that this body takes you know like. If I am not, if, if me, if I am somewhat separate from my body, is there this thing, this one unitary thing that can affect change such that I can perceive, I, I can pursue my goals? Or is it like a, an amalgam of different, you know, as we were talking about before, like interacting subsystems that could be considered, you know, that amalgamation can be considered this unitary self? Um, do you kind of see what I'm getting at? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, so like, there's a sense in which, like, for instance, you could say like, you are a game theoretic equilibrium. Equilibrium. You are a set of game theoretic equilibria over these subagents in the society of your mind. And when they are capable of, when the 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 game structure is such that particular solutions happen with a certain degree of regularity over and consistency that you can create a thread through them or you get coordination. You're like, well, that's me. I'm, I'm, I'm the, I'm the victor's history and the revisionist victor's history over like this pandemonium within. I, I think that's not wrong. 
Um, I think, that's how I think there's, if you're at a party, like, oh, so who are you? Well, this is. Uh, and then you, then you, you join. And they're the, just like, all right, I'm going this way. You join Cosmic Clippy and Cthulhu, and you stare off into the void with menace yeah, and laugh maniacally. Um, that's what I do. That's how I am a party. That actually is how I am a party. But um, the, um, I think the when these the mechanism design over the games is structured according to narrative then and we're back to Dennett again with the self as the center of narrative gravity like um that when when you get an attracting manifold for all these coordinating and competing agents where what the dominating coalitions will be is structured by a narrative which then feeds back into the narrative process which then structures the the act the neuronal activity selection um then you could i think if that narrative has a consistency over time and it actually does have this property of serving as a, a source of entraining power um then i think you could be said to have a self in yourself would be that center of narrative gravity the there's a sense also like you're saying earlier with like the the multiple realizability of things and like the way like words can provide like like you have these sensitivities and initial conditions. There's all these things that be different, but then like the word lets you course grain over all of that like mess. There's a sense in which like our goals and values and meanings in these narratives serve that function. Like all sorts of like fluctuations can happen. All sorts of uh, you know nonlinear chaotic dynamics can unfold. But if at the right part of the system you have uh, representations of these goals. And that they're in their position in the right way that they can entrain, uh, then I, I, I'd say you have like a, an autonomous self to the degree that's the case, and it's by degrees. It's um, mm -hmm. yeah, and and so the yeah, and I guess the one more thing I guess about um, this is with respect to consciousness is um, and so being aware of these narratives that's going to be helpful, but there's also I think. Um, for those being capable of um, meaningfully connecting with your experience, but also there's a sense in which phenomenal consciousness, so not just not conscious access, but phenomenal consciousness itself. Um, I, I, I agree with IIT, with integrated information theory, that actually consciousness is the dominant uh, cause in the whole system. It's that this maximally uh, self-generating complex. Like, if you're really good at um, having this harness complexity, you're going to be good at driving other things. You're going to be adaptive. You can create coherent flows and adaptive flows. And so, the, the dynamic core of, or which would be centered around like the brain's rich club, it might be maybe fifty percent of your overall brain metabolism. And so there's a sense in which your consciousness is a maximal cause in that way, like however you slice it. Like, and for, it's like the dominant prediction, but it's also like energetically, it's probably the most expensive thing your brain does. And it's paying its weight somehow. I think it's paying its weight because it lets you surf uncertainty. It lets you stay on top of these action perception cycles. And, it, it, and that's how it pays its weight. And also needs to have that weight to do it, to actually meaningfully drive coordinate activity. And so, Having uh, a large scale 
the ability to generate topologically central with respect to the overall network, large-scale, high-power complexes that, if they have the right information, could entail consciousness, um, these then can be used to entrain or enslave the overall system in different directions. And I think this is a sense in which you are a cause. Um, this is a sense in which you have free will, in which your consciousness is um, potentially, under some circumstances, a maximal cause of what happens. Now, it depends on, like, you know, which part of consciousness we're talking about, but, but that would be the idea that phenomenal consciousness is actually the strongest informational and energetic object in the mind. And I actually think that uh, when we're finally done with the taboo and we finally have a little more clarity, we're going to be like, oh, God, what were we doing all these years? Like, treating, like, we're basically, people treat consciousness, like, as just like, oh, that's just philosophical. It's actually the most real thing in the mind, in some ways. Um, it's the only real thing that we kind of, it's the realest thing, because everything else that we perceive is an appearance in consciousness, and it's just a, a hallucination. Like consciousness is the realest thing for each of, in, for each of us. I forget who said that, but, or who said this, but it's like, um, consciousness isn't just the elephant in the room, it is the room. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Exactly. Um, so having covered consciousness and, you know, free will, I think we can move on to, you know, the very fascinating topic on what actually can just completely transform our conscious experience, psychedelics. Sure. So um, what the hell, what happens in the brain when, you know, you take a tab of acid or if you, you know, eat some mushrooms or soak DMT or, like I'm, I'm sure like they're all different substances, so they may have similarities and differences. So there are, they'll have similarities and differences, but what are the similarities? Like, what do we know is going on when we have these, when we go on these little, these journeys? So um, before we go to that, uh, quick uh, correction. Uh, so the, the 50% figure, that's actually the rich club of the brain, like the highly connected set of nodes. That would be the, the most connected, the most signaling elements. Uh, consciousness, I would argue, will tend to center a lot of these, but I, I think the exact like energetic costs of the particular signaling that's giving rise to your experience, uh, that's like that's going to be more complicated. That's going to depend on like what is specifically is in the scope of what's being synchronized in what ways. It's not. I, I don't know if I'd say it's fifty percent. It would be like some. But the idea though is, I still would say that it is. It can be the dominant attractor, and it's not just a mere epiphenomenon that's just like along for the ride, but altered states of consciousness. Um, so I guess the standard model within predictive processing would be the Rebus model by Carhart Harris and Carl Friston. And they argue that um, you have relaxed beliefs under psychedelics. And so viewing the brain and mind as this giant belief hierarchy, uh, the idea would be that where you're passing your prediction errors upwards and your predictions, your prediction errors upwards towards deeper parts of the hierarchy or higher, and you're passing your predictions downwards and where the predictions are your experience, uh, that with psychedelics, um, specifically the, the classic variety of um, serotonergic ones uh, five H that target the 5-HT2A system, that what these so will do is what, they are, what like for example because which ones target those mushrooms things? lsd um dmt uh, 
uh, different cacti, uh, San Pedro, uh, mescaline, uh, okay. that these would, I think, uh, that these would, by exciting the 5-HT2A, by stimulating the 5-HT2A receptors, which tend to be concentrated in the deeper portions of the generative model, the, the deeper portions of the brain, the more removed parts, um, that you excite them so much that they fall out of sync with each other and that this causes a relaxing of your belief landscape and that you now have qualitatively, you don't have these strong prior assumptions anymore. And so now you're able to actually see more of what's in the world and experience more. Uh, and this would be associated with a kind of like um, more intense experience with more rich details as you remove and potentially unusual connections things like synesthetic phenomenology um, or seeing things that would be different than your expectation as an hallucination. When you remove this, this strong dominance from the top down uh, specifically from things like the default mode network. Um, I don't think that is necessarily incorrect. I think that that really does get at a lot of it. Um, I've been proposing though, that we need to um, augment the Rebus model with um, strength and beliefs as well. And so specifically, if you look at these, uh, this class of receptors, the 5-HG2A, um, it's not just located on the, these deep pyramidal neurons that will tend to loop with the thalamus and form these big synchronous ensembles, which can bring, can stitch together big models and past beliefs over distance. Um, so it'll, it'll, it'll excite those and potentially throw them out of sync such that you actually end up paradoxically weakening the predictions. That's possible. Um, they're located there, but they're also located at the, at the upper levels. So, so cortex is like, it's got these six, so it's this big dinner napkin that's crumpled into your head. And then if you look at the cross section of the napkin material under a microscope, there's six layers, roughly six layers. And so the, the deep pyramidal neurons would be the lower parts of the napkin, and then the superficial ones would be the upper parts of the napkin. And the predictions will tend to be coming from the deeper parts of the napkin that's crumpled up. By deeper, I don't mean along the whole range of that, but like within the cross section. That's, that's what I mean mm -hmm. by deep, deep pyramidal neurons. And then superficial would be the parts that are facing the outside. And those are where your prediction errors are passed upwards. And so you'll see that these 5-HT2A um, receptors are also located at the inhibitory, in, inhibitory interneurons of the surface of the napkin. And so what I would argue is uh, that um, the Rebus model conflates the um, emergent properties and phenomenology of the intense full-blown psychedelic experience with the receptor level mechanism. I actually think at the level of the cortical microcircuitry, it's the opposite of what they say by and large, although it might happen at the extreme doses, but that if you're at like a low to a moderate dose, or maybe most like physiological ranges as you would get stimulation under natural conditions, that it would actually tend to be a, a um, increasing the ability of these large synchronous ensembles to form through the excitation. Uh, there would be a point where if you excite too much, they could fall to sync, but that it's not clear that this would happen from any degree of exciting the units that talk to each other over distance. It's not clear that they would fall to sync by increasing the, the ease with which they fire. It would only be at the extremes. But further, because you're inhibiting the ascending stream of prediction errors, or you potentially you would, again, you might get different immersion properties with different levels, but 
most straightforwardly, if you're increasing the gain on the things that are inhibiting this, uh, if you're in, if you're increasing the inhibition of the thing that would communicate the prediction errors, it seems like not only might you have more intense phenomenology, uh, stronger predictions, depending on what level of hierarchy we're talking about, but they're also shielded from disconfirming evidence. And so I think this would be consistent with things like hallucinations that appear with uh, sensory deprivation, like a flotation tank, or like a uh, Charles Binet syndrome, where people like will lose like their um their, their they'll start to go blind from from like their eyes. But then they'll start getting intense visual um, hallucinations or, or from their ears. You lose hearing, but then you start hallucinating things because you're not getting this contradiction of your expectations. And so it ends up being you, your waking dream becomes less tethered to the world. It becomes more like a dream proper, um, more like a, a, de a decoupled dream. And so the I believe psychedelics, the mechanisms are complicated, but I believe that the classic psychedelics work largely by increasing the strengths of your priors um, and shield of your perceptual priors and shielding these from deconfirming de evidence. And some these also might be your priors um, at the level of every stage of the hierarchy, some of which where you have higher level attractors over your perceptual states, higher level things that might correspond more to things like uh, dynamics of like, inner speech and, and, and habitual frames, those could get strengthened or weakened depending on the amount of simulation if you're telling the story at the level of just the activation. However, let's say now you've just made things different. Things are now, you're starting to see things differently than they were there. Um, radically different, like you, there, there are aliens talking to you. That's going to that that's that itself will cause relaxation. That's a different world. Like if you experience, wait, wait, wait. You said talking to aliens will cause relaxation. That might cause you to to, to say, I don't know what's up. <laughs> you I might talking to aliens. I don't think I'd be relaxed. Like normally, maybe in like the, the you know the DMT zone, maybe it's a bit different. But like if I was talking to aliens, he'd be like, "Holy shit, <laughs> pitch me." <laughs> You know, it's exactly like pinch me or I don't know what's real anymore. I don't know. Like you might have a, you might have a, um, people call it like an ontological crisis. You might mm. think the world is radically different. And, and in a lot of ways, um, that would be, um, for a lot of people, that's the journey. And, and that's actually the, the benefit is, is it's helping you to see things different than they could be otherwise. And so this could happen from like a receptor mechanism, like they talk about. And rebus, or it could happen just because you're pushed into a different like area of mind space, and then you experience things that are radically different, and this causes you to see things differently. I guess I would add one more thing, which is in terms of like like psychedelic as like mind manifesting. So under this like strength and beliefs idea, if you're lowering the barriers to entry into consciousness for different percepts, different beliefs, if things come up more easily, in theory, this could cause you to see things that you might normally avoid. And this could potentially cause you to uh, certain patterns of uh, direct, convenient direction and misdirection of your attention, like the things we hide from ourselves, you might see them. And so like, let's say like you're struggling with addiction. Well, you might then say like, you might then like see the concept. So, through your, your so so one part of addiction 
is just experiential avoidance. So the things you're avoiding, that might just come up. There it is. You gotta, you gotta deal with that. Another part would be, um, there might be consequences to what you're doing that, that you don't like. And maybe you don't like looking at those either. You, there's sometimes you like looking in the mirror and sometimes you avoid the mirror. And here's the mirror. And that could cause therapeutic change in that way. So it could be either, or let's say you just schematize some aspect of your life as being unimportant. You got habituated to it. You, you lost, you, you stopped paying attention to things. You might like realizing, wait a second. Um, the people in my life, the, wait, I'm so glad they're there. We have all the, like, we do this and this, they, they do this for me. Wait, I could do this. They, they appreciate me in this way. It's like these things you just take for granted. They just come up again. Um, I, I think that that would, and so I, I think you could tell the story either in terms of relaxation of beliefs or strengthening of beliefs, but I think you're need, and I think you'll, you'll need both. And the idea is like you have this, um, it's a different world of expectation, but with an elevated consciousness level that makes things more vivid. And I, I, and at some levels, if we're talking about things like hallucinations or potentially delusions uh, or potentially insights, it would be this increasing the gain on your priors or your predictions, um, I think would correspond to the, um, the anomalous inference, the, the seeing what's not there. You're mm -hmm. seeing what's not there because your priors are too strong. Um, and that would be a hallucination. That would be a miscalibration. Mm -hmm. that, that's my yeah, take at the moment. When I said relaxation, I think I misheard you because you said relaxation of your prior beliefs. I just thought you meant if you see aliens, you'd be more relaxed. I'm like, I think, that's, I, think I misinterpreted you there. <laughs> that could happen too. I mean, like the... Uh, like so for for some people the thing they might be avoiding or just what comes up might be some kind of like hellscape right and mm -hmm. then you might have no choice but to have a kind of relaxation of a kind of surrender you just okay i'm dying now you just what, what are you gonna do and then yeah. after you're okay with that maybe you can be like if you can face that what else can you face maybe you, you then adopt a stance of greater acceptance of your experience and more flexibility and, and awareness from that. Yeah. Um, this makes me think, so like I've, I've dabbled um, in the past and I've always experienced like mental fatigue afterwards. Like my, you know, it's like having spent a, you know, when you spend a, a lot of time doing hard mental work, you feel a type of fatigue that's different to, you know, physical exercise. It's different to the fatigue that you feel from physical exercise, but you're still drained. I'd love to know, if you know brain metabolism goes up by twenty or fifty percent um, during these uh, these experiences, because um, that's how it definitely feels like that. It feels like there's just a hell of a lot more going on. I mean, in theory, like these. Uh, I don't know what would contribute to it the most, but. In theory, so part of the fatigue could be just like if you're having an intense experience and you're doing different things, you're you're uh, you're you're driving your body harder than you would normally. That could be a good amount of it. But in terms of like, in theory, if you are elevating the gain on the signaling units which mediate your conscious experience, 
and you're basically overclocking them, that could be part of it too. That could be, there could be a, a, a metabolic drain on the systems, which you then, uh, through a kind of implicit metacognition, reads as fatigue saying, okay, we drove this system pretty hard. Let's ease up. Uh, mm -hmm. we, we tend to like, it, it seems like we have, um, mechanisms where, you know, we're like our felt sense of fatigue oftentimes is surprisingly different than our actual energy levels. But what we're doing is we're kind of like predictively saying, okay, wait, how tired ought I to be given the circumstances of what maybe I need to do next? And it's like, it's like in theory, like you could like move, like you could keep pushing your body far farther than you do. But just you like get we're doing team. now, you know, just like we're doing now. Just like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we're not talking about the weather, you know. <laughs> I'm feeling a bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And listeners, I hope that you are hanging in there as well. So it's, um, it, it's possible that that's, that's part of what's driving it. It's just like uh, turbocharging, uh, turbocharging consciousness. But it's, um, and I've seen different things from different studies in terms of like, there does seem to be an overall increase. So under a Rebus model, not necessarily focusing on like the circuitry, the idea would be that like, so you, if you remove the highest level predictions, well then the rest of the system, so usually these predictions are of a suppressive variety. They're suppressing, they're, they're, they're explaining away the lower dynamics. They're, um, they're keeping prediction er errors from going higher. But if you remove these predictions, well, then you can get more prediction error, more activity, and maybe that's the metabolism. And, and that, that probably actually um, might be closer to the point um, in that it seems like the majority of the energy and like the reason you do predictive coding, like, like let's say you're like looking at MRI and you look at like where the blob lights up, where the blood flow happens. I believe that tends to be most strongly driven by prediction error. It tends to be more this uh, surface activity that's not successfully predicted and you're getting these like flare up events of cascading messages upwards. That seems to be the most energetic thing. And part of the reason you do predictive coding is not just so that you can be quicker and stay on top of things and be a good model. That's, that's the main reason. But part of it is if you are primarily suppressing this activity and only communicating where you got things wrong, you end up coming out ahead energetically. So that's why they like um, predictive coding, you know, initially uh, developed for televisions um, and telecommunication with, let's say you're having this frame updated like 23 or 24 times a second. And what you're depicting isn't changing very quickly relative to the refresh rate. You come way out ahead in terms of the number of bits you have to communicate just by communicating the differences from frame to frame. And so if all you're doing is communicating where you got things wrong, and if the events of the engagement of the world are change, are evolving more slowly relative to the neuronal signaling, you might come out ahead in a similar way. You might have, you pass the fewest messages, the fewest action potentials, the least energy. But if you remove the, these highest level predictions by whatever means, that could in theory both give more fodder for the richness of your experience, um, but that the price you paid is all that ATP. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so th this reminds me of a conversation. I, I kind of want to talk a, a little bit about meditation, but before we get into that, I'll talk about it in this context. 
Um, I'm just curious to hear your thoughts. Um, so I used to have a, a an EEG headband that I would meditate with. Um, and it basically measures your brainwaves in real time. Supposedly it's like, it's reasonably accurate, accurate enough for it to be used in certain research in, in certain experiments at universities around Muse? the world. Is that the Muse. One? Yeah. I had the Muse. Yeah. I've heard good um, things. Yeah. And so I had, I had that for a while and, uh, I would use it most days. Um, and you know, it takes into account, um, what is it? Alpha, beta, gamma, theta waves. And, you know, it kind of condenses those down into, you, you can either get the raw data or it interprets it and says you're in a calm state of mind or you're in an active state of mind or whatever. And it would give you auditory feedback depending on how active your mind was. And, um, so you'd sit there and meditate, and if you were Zen, you'd hear like birds chirping and like the leaves slowly rustling. And if your mind wandered, and I found that this was quite accurate, like it, it seemed to map onto my experience of a good meditation session pretty well. So if, if your attention wanders, you, the, the soundscape would start to get quite um, agitated, and you know, you hear the trees would be blowing and the wind would be blowing and the birds would stop chirping. So it was this, um, it was just real time feedback on you know what the state of your brain was like. So I was meditating with this for a while and then I had a, a DMT experience. Um, and the next day after the experience, I meditated with the headband and my data. So you, you would get, you see your graph would just be like, you know, up to like high was active, low was, um, Zen. And prior to the experience, I was quite active, but then afterwards for about the space of a week, I was just super calm and collected and Zen. Like I could just slip into the, into the zone for lack of a better term, far more easily. And I remember in the experience that I had, I had this, so I kind of, for those of you who aren't familiar with DMT, you can kind of break through, you kind of go to like a, a different space, a different place. Uh, at least that's how it feels. Um, and I, um, felt that I was focusing in on my thoughts and that they were distracting me from like the experience that I was having around me. So I experienced this very profound sensation of separation from like self and thought. And then I was like, all right, dude, stop thinking. You just got to, uh, you know, experience what the hell is going on put your thoughts aside. And I think it was that separation from self and thought that resulted in the, the really um, profound changes in the, the EEG measurements from my meditation session the following day. Um, and that didn't, the, didn't persist. The, what, were, what were the uh, readings the following day? How are they different? way lower so if this is the graph like if instead of it being up around here in the high levels it was like close to like in, so much, the much lowest. less gamma much less gamma less beta i'm not sure what like so it interprets it and then gives it into one line so i didn't know what the raw data said and i didn't know how to interpret it but i would love to do this as a as a citizen science experiment we just get citizen scientists around the world with news headbands and then or you know a whole bunch of people and then we choose to engage in these, uh, in, in psychedelics. We, 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 you know, you just met the headband for 60 days before and then take a psych, have a psychedelic experience and then take it, uh, and then meditate for 60 days after, see what happens. I would be very interested in that. And I'd also be interested in seeing like the difference. So it's, it might not be straightforwardly related to like, what you observe during the DMT session might be different than what you observe afterwards, or it might be similar. But like, so I think in a recent study, they're showing decreased posterior alpha and 
increased uh, frontal theta. And it would be interesting if that was what you saw. Well, or, theta is the dream. Theta is like the dream. Like that's what's correlated with dreams, right? And alpha is imagination. Is, is, uh, imagination, but, but also um, in a way, executive functions. So theta would be the ability of like the hippocampal system with the frontal lobes uh, to to loop with each other and basically guide the whole system through different orchestrate guiding the system yeah. to different areas as like you're you're navigating and. and well, that mapped onto my experience because like I'm like pretty chaotic and I struggle to get myself under control, but I could just slip into that zone way faster than I could normally. Um, so. So like, I wonder like, is it like afterwards? So it's like during the experience, you had this experience of intense meaning and from the meaning, greater ability to be conscious of things and focus and direct things. Or not, or not, but like depends on how much DMT I imagine. But the yeah, um, or yeah, I see that that experience of separation from self and thought. I think that might have been the catalyst. So perhaps that that might have been what really made the uh, like generated the effect. But I'm not too sure. Yeah, I, I'm wondering. Like you can think of it like afterwards. It might not be that. But like, are you self actualized or are you free from self? Are you in like this sort of like blessed surrender or are you like, or, or is it just you, or are you just less a conflict with yourself? And like, uh, so in the experience, like, did you feel, um, kind of, uh, did you feel more like you were just letting things be, or did you feel like you were directing? Things? No, letting things be. So I felt like by thinking I had binoculars and I was my biologists were focusing on the um, on the thoughts, but there was just this incredible amount of activity going around me, and I was just focusing on my little tiny thoughts. And I'm like, I'm missing this. I'm missing the show. Like, shut up, stop talking, enjoy the experience, which is quite interesting as well. You know, like this, like there's all this stuff appearing in my awareness that I wasn't generating. At least that's what, you know, it was novel. Like I didn't feel like I was generating anything. Um, like it was, yeah, it's like sometimes when I've been stoned, like um, my subconscious, it's like I've got my eyes closed and I've just got a, um, a projector screen and my subconscious is just throwing stuff at it. And I'm just watching what the hell my brain throws up. And sometimes it's like hilarious stuff. You know, sometimes it'll make me chuckle, which is funny to think that you can make yourself laugh. You know, like in humor, there's the there's surprise, right? You need to like, you, you know what's coming. You don't really laugh at it. Um so yeah anyway you can actually be surprised by your own experience you can actually instead of trying to direct your experience it's uh i was watching the tv of my brain but i was just like literally like a spectator to the fireworks in my head it doesn't happen all the time with cannabis it's just i think it depends on the strain or whatever but it was a yeah pretty interesting like i don't like any idea that i have isn't really mine it's just like I, I don't hold, I don't take any ownership of the ideas that I have because this is like, I've taken in information. My brain is the consequence of like lots of evolution and it's filled with thoughts and ideas that I didn't come up with. And there's just this underlying machinery that's going and it just spits shit out. And I, the, the conscious apprehender is like, Oh, that looks pretty good. I'll put that out into the world. Um, thanks. Like, you know, subconscious. I don't take any responsibility for that stuff at all. 
except for being able to guide my attention towards things that I find interesting, but I don't know why I'm interested in them. And I'm not very good at guiding my attention. So I don't take much responsibility for anything in that, in this regard. Since there does come a stage. It's like there's stages of development where you want to direct the flow, like the child, you want to give the child agency and will and make it control things and become a particular type of thing in the world and get particular things to happen and learn particular things. But it's, it's a, it's an interdependent process throughout. And also those very control efforts, that very goal seeking can undermine itself and becomes overly rigid. And at some points you can just, I guess, less let go. I heard like in like, this is, this is true, but like, uh, like in cultures we have Confucianism and Taoism, it would be like Confucianism would be like, there's a long period of like, and training yourself to ritual and the group. And then at a certain point, you just like, you, you've earned the privilege of once you've like, rocked ritual enough that you can just like now you can like enjoy the Tao. Then you like go into the woods and like become a sage. And it sounds pretty good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like to have both things. Yeah. Um so we we reached we've got we're at, at about three Three hours. Um, how how are you feeling? What time is it? Okay, it is ten thirty. Ten thirty. Okay. Um, well, Probably I reckon we pumpkin at eleven. Yeah. <laughs> um, I reckon we kind of think about bringing this to a wrap soon, and maybe we can have a follow up episode sometime in the future. Um, but I guess there's a lot that I think we've covered. We've covered a lot. I think there's a lot that we haven't covered. And I've kind of taken us on these silly tangents. Um, but where, yeah, yeah. Sometimes I just get a little bit excited. Um, so is there anything that we haven't covered that you really want to bring up or that like, if a talking point that you really want to hit on or uh, go over again or clarify? Um, I know we got some questions on Twitter um, that I do not know enough to really be able to understand and ask you them because I don't, understand what they're asking me so so clearly because i'm just not too familiar with this whole um this whole space ah so the um like one question what does synchrony do in the brain i think synchrony promotes coherent communication among neurons that allows them to create ensembles which are greater than some of their parts and figure out things that they couldn't do on their own and so you have to align the neurons and their activity in time so that their activity can actually sum rather than decay. And so this maelstrom of possible signaling, you can get coherent patterns through orchestrating different rhythms. Some of these rhythms, I call these different ensembles self-organizing harmonic modes, and some of them might entail consciousness if they're over the right set of subnetworks that have access to the right types of information and the right circumstances but each rhythm will do something different within these predictive processing stories and within these stories of the brain as a complex hybrid architecture. Uh, 
there was this question about um, some recent beef between radical and activists and the free energy principle. And yeah, is did we hit on that? Did we hit on that? Like, we touched I feel like we, we touched on it. Yeah, I, I, I suggested that it, it is um, that that free energy principle. You can call it like highly compatible with autopoiesis, Bayesian autopoiesis. The but um, Evan Thompson, who worked with Francisco Varela or um, extensively, says no. This is not doing justice to it, and um, that's a whole issue. And the Ramstead reply came in, which I didn't really understand, but someone called it, you know, Maxwell Ramsey's reply, and they said, here's their Ramsey reply. I thought it was hilarious because, you know, he comes out with these great these great threads in response it, to it, the stuff on the FEP. One of the, the, some of the best threads. And one of the things that's actually, I thought was interesting about that critique, and this is an ongoing issue, um, and Max is working on it, it's like, so when you're not within this non-equilibrium steady-state condition, when things aren't so, so, Things that are changing and, are, and, and have not achieved, um, they're not steady. Um, when, when, when the Markov blanket is constantly changing, you can't identify a clear boundary. How do you model these systems? And, and there is a, um, and this is not resolved in the free energy principle. I don't think there is a clear way of describing it yet. And in some ways, it, it kind of corresponds to um, kind of like the traveling wave versus standing wave issue of like within like the stadium. It's like um, on some time scales, you can say there is a harmonic, there's a standing wave. But like if you zoom in, it's actually full of traveling waves. Is there a right or wrong answer? Well, it depends on what process you're talking about with relation to what other process with which it's coupling. But there's like an interesting thing, um, uh, especially a, a Buddhist idea of or, um, from Nagarjuna of like um, uh, emptiness is form and form is emptiness, or like it's only because things are do not have this this clear everlasting essence only because they're constantly in flux, constantly interdependent, changing, that they can actually be as they are at all. So there's a sense in which the system is constantly changing. It's never the same system of river of experience twice. twice. And so like, what's the system? Is it a new system? It depends. But this, um, that issue, it, it's interesting that they're getting at um, what Evan's talking about there with um I think that might be part of the intuition that like autopoiesis is saying like these systems that are answering Schrodinger's question, the only way they do it is actually by being both system and non-system almost at the same time. Like they have this, this openness, this indeterminacy is the thing that gives them what determinacy they happen to have. What, what it is. That's, that's, I have to look at that more closely, but that's my understanding there. And then uh, I think there's another question on a, what is life? Um, yeah. <laughs> Another so word. Actually, I, I was going to ask you, like, because what are these yeah. questions? You know, what is life like? You know, if we take this free energy perspective or this, you know, like this thermodynamic perspective, this thermodynamic or complex adaptive systems perspective, where it needs to be, uh, you know, persisting um, across time. You know, combating the the entropic tide uh, incessantly, constantly. Um, so maintaining form, but how? Yeah. So, I mean, you can have like self-replicating, like we, we think, I think that the first, that what might've started the journey was self-replicating mo molecules. Right. Um, and they somehow led to like, to, through some bootstrapping thing led to, um, the earliest life forms. And I was just thinking through this idea, like you could consider that like perhaps the first, I have no idea here, but I was, I, I wanted to ask you this, I actually wrote this down. It's like, 
perhaps it's not the molecules, but like it's the first collection of these molecules that has some form of internal model or that is the model. Because I, I wouldn't really call a self-replicating molecules as a, as a model of the environment, but perhaps the earliest life forms were the first ones to embody a model of the environment in some, in some way. I actually, this might not quite be what you're saying, but I actually have been thinking, I, I think along similar lines of that I actually am increasingly suspecting that the thing that differentiates like well, the life where we might want to reserve the word for it and from something that seems lifelike. So like any like, um, dissipate, like any dissipative system, like it's like a whirlpool, things are flowing through it. Yeah. It's maintaining its form. It's, it's impressive. And like a candle flame, it's lifelike in a way. And it's like, huh, that's interesting. What it's doing it's, it's showing a certain, um, type of, um, Adaptiveness to not it, it, there is there are these like rectifying processes happening that that within the flux is keeping the thing and but this I think separation might be between the whole system being in its dynamics the modeling process but then reserving some as the system gets big enough and complex enough a subsystem which can not be immediately engaged in the exchange, but can give you a kind of um, additional modeling on top of it and intelligence on top of it. So like for a cell, it could be, uh, it could be something like a somewhat shielded metabolic cycle, or maybe like a pattern of like gene expression to some degree, like the separation of like DNA from proteins itself could be part of it. But this, this creating a separation, I mean, there's a sense in which I actually think the hard problem of consciousness and hard problem of life might heavily overlap in that what moves us to saying that we have a model and are not just a model and that we have a, a, not just a, like a model that can be intelligent in a particular kind of way and give you a a modeling of the overall system by virtue of being shielded. It can now, in, in its dynamics, estimate the whole thing. Um, that that with for life itself, you might need something similar in terms of like these the complexity of metabolic cycles accumulating some uh, logic, some imp in, implicit logic, some some emergent functional module, a dynamic module, constitutional, but that itself allows for um, a greater degree of hierarchical control and hierarchical modeling and that that might be the key, that might be one of the key things is creating hmm. this inner loop thing capable yeah. of doing modeling of the overall system and so i'm wondering if that is required both for consciousness and for life and so there's there might be a sense in which the answer to schrodinger's question and the solution to the hard problem there's a sense in which they might be one and the same even though like, I'm not saying that everything that lives is conscious, but there might be a sense which the form of it and what's needed informationally might be very similar. Mm. Because if you like in the case of life, if you get rid of the model, then at, at the smallest level, it's just like mechanistic, right? Like something happens and then the, um, the proto organism responds in a way by virtue of that, like the nature of that mechanistic interaction. And then, these things like there's no 
representation. There's no like processing. It's just kind of, it just happens, you know, like cause, like there's a very linear relationship between cause and effect. There's no like, I guess, I don't want to keep saying the same words, but integration or processing or anything yeah, extra. It's just. Well, like, yeah, the system encounters this and then it just deterministically, or it's always deterministically, yeah. right, but it, it then responds like through this immediate coupling. But in yeah. theory, you could get like a kind of like optionality and a flexibility afforded by having like um, something removed that can adjudicate and select among the different modes that you could enter rather than just this like simple fast loops. Instead, you can get by having a hierarchy of mechanisms where some of these mechanisms can have their own kind of uh, temporarily decoupled attractor dynamics that these could give you modeling of the overall system of, of, of different degrees of, of, of detail, but that this can give you much greater adaptability and, and, and switching among appropriate modes. And so I'm wondering if that's the thing. Like, it's not just uh, the system reconstituting a system being able to hold its form, but a system that holds its form via a particular kind of modeling, a, a, a particular kind of at least like two tier, like a, a particular type of hierarchical modeling. And if that's necessary for life, and that's also the thing that moves us from radical and activism to this marriage of an activism and cognitivism, where within this, one of these submodels, if it's got access to the right information, could give rise to consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be beautiful, wouldn't it? If the solution like had the same form, the hard problem of life. Yeah, yeah, it'd be amazing. That'd be really, really cool. Could be the case. Two birds with one stone. <laughs> so if people want to find out, you know, if they want to follow your work online, if they want to check out what you're what you're up to, if they want to read some of your papers, uh, where should people uh where would you direct them? Oh, uh I guess ResearchGate, Google Scholars got the papers. Um, uh, I use Facebook as a science blog by and large. Um, and, uh, same thing with Twitter. So. Yep. So happy if I just link those in, in the show notes. Yeah. Yep. Um, all right. Well, I think this has been a, a fun winding, uh, conversation. Glad that we finally got to do it. Um, uh, any any requests from the audience? Anything you'd like to mention or say before we wrap up? There's an audience. <laughs> well, there will be. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, no, just uh, I really enjoyed this, and um, let's you and me keep the conversation going. And anyone else, uh, anyone else who's interested, uh, contact me. Sounds good. All right, Adam. Thank you. Thank you. Hey everyone, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. All of the links to things discussed can be found in the show notes, which you can find either on your podcasting app or on my website at samhbarton.com slash podcast. If you'd like to keep up to date with new episodes and anything else I've got going on, subscribe to my newsletter through my website, follow me on Twitter at samhbarton, and subscribe to the YouTube channel where you can view all of the podcast episodes as well as short clips of some of the highlights from them. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to share it with whoever you think might love it and consider giving it a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks again for listening and until next time, stay curious.